Brandon Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Hans Gruber. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, now I have a podcast. Oh, oh, oh. named our month peter but I, I i think i think our month the name should be uh uh now i have a theme ho 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 i like it yeah uh i think it's what it should be but yeah where we love to watch we're a movie podcast we pick a theme as we just did name wise uh, and we do movies over the course of that mo- of a month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. Going to be fucking easy to remember this this month uh, because we are doing our sixth incarnation of our annual Christmas theme, December. And we've done it all. We've done horror Christmas. We've done Christmas classics. We've done Shane Black Christmas. Uh, we've done uh, a cursed Christmas, Hallmark Christmas, uh, and there's really only one Christmas left before we go back into the other wells and do all the other entries from all those other categories we wanted to do, and that is uh, the famous franchise, as it's known in German, the Hard series, and do the Die Hard movies. Uh, this kind of started as something that Peter and I were talking about for a long time, not necessarily as a Christmas month, but... Peter and I had like legitimate frustrated text exchanges a few times over the fact that I think of the original four. Now, again, this will this will potentially change upon rewatch. I have not I have seen I see one all the time. I haven't seen the other three in a while, um, but I, I had kind of maintained that my ranking was one, four, two and three. And even though all are good to, to great, that I thought that Die Hard with a Vengeance was was the worst and Live Free or Die Hard was the second best. And Peter thinks that I, th- I think you think Die Hard with a Vengeance is even better than the first one. And uh, you, you would place Live Free or Die Hard as. I think I did one slash three. Um, okay. My, my, my contention was just that with a Vengeance is, is, is sorely, sorely. Uh... Um, underrated film, which is a boring thing to say, which is why I will I'll talk about it more in two episodes. Uh, but my yeah. official ranking is um, at the very bottom: Die Hard Five, which I haven't seen. Um, yeah. <laughs> that I, wait, that is, is that a good day to Die Hard? Seen, or is yeah, unseen. Wait, that's which yeah. one is five? A good day to five, Die no, Hard. No, five is five's four? a good day to Die Hard. Yeah, and then so that's that's the bottom. Then Allegedly, next is then next is uh, Die Hard four. Then next is Die Hard two. 
Next is Die Hard 3 1. And then on top of it is that battery commercial where Bruce Willis looks <laughs> like he wants to die. Hard. <laughs> Wait, which one's four and which one's five? Live Free or Die Hard is four. That'll be yeah. the, the, the latest Die Hard entry we'll be covering this month. We will not be covering the very sad, know. was it a Super Dude. Bowl battery commercial? Got it. Look, we, we have been sending a lot of exchanges that are like, do we though? <laughs> no. Why would we end the year on the one that everyone agrees is bad? But do we? You guys are so. definitely going to have just for four episodes of compare and contrast all diehards. Like, do you reasonably expect you will stick to like one diehard per episode? Like, it's- No, I think I, I think there is. I mean, the thing about this and we're going to get into this pretty quick, like this movie is fucking perfect. Right. And this movie it's kind of like to go to another well that we go to a lot. It's like Dark Souls. Like the first Dark Souls game is, you know, essentially like a perfect video game. Um, even in like it, it both invents a genre, but also perfects it in kind of almost one swoop. And then most of the other like sequels to that or, or iterations for the most part are, you know, have good things and have bad things, but are really tough to com- compare to that i think dark die hard one through four is a remarkably consistent and entertaining series it is interesting you know because again how do you top perfection you don't you change it so like what do they get right in the other movies sometimes from kind of going off the map and sometimes by sticking with it and what do they get wrong from um from uh, again trying something new or sticking too close and i also think that die hard sequels is a good way to kind of frame up this month are very interesting conceptually right like you you basically have it's not like it's not like a friday the 13th series or something like that or even a lot of the action franchises from uh from the era where it's like we're just going to do the same thing or we're going to go completely off book die hard you really have kind of a grab bag of where they go with sequels die hard Two is essentially, a, you know, in some ways a classic 80s and 90s sequel, which is let's just do the same thing with some mildly different uh, trappings. Boom, you know, bang. not a building. Yeah, not a building. It's an airport. It's it's this. It's that. Wait, same character. By the way, you said they go way off book. Are any of the sequels yeah. based on a book? Because uh, apparently no. Die Hard, which I didn't know until recently, is based on a book. No, nothing lasts forever. Yeah, um, which is a sequel to a. Uh, well, we can talk about that here in a second. But um, yeah, the, so Die Hard Two is also based on a book, but it's based on a book that was written under the auspices of Oh My, Nothing Lasts Forever, which came out in 1979, which becomes the the kind of the spine of Die Hard. That author goes and writes a third, um, a third entry in this character called like the detective. That then gets almost like officially adapted into Die Hard Two, but you know it's it's a it's a really like common sequel. We're gonna do the same shit. It's gonna be slightly different. Like you know, this, now the shark is attacking this. Now like Freddy's an airport attacking novel. This. That's great. Yeah, it's like what you want yeah. though normally. Yeah, and then Die Hard Three is actually we're gonna talk about this a lot. Die Hard Three is actually a Lethal Weapon uh, huh. script that gets uh, uh, it's actually a standalone movie called Simon Says that gets turned into a uh, Lethal Weapon script that then gets turned into a Die Hard sequel. So you have something very different for all of those reasons, but it still brings in like some character continuity with uh, with the villain uh, and kind of, I think, plugging the biggest gap in Die Hard 2. 
but that's why you have Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis, because it essentially was scripted to be a Danny Glover, Mel Gibson uh, movie. And then Die Hard 4 is your classic. We haven't done anything for 12 years. We're going to do a reboot. And the character that we know and love who uh, is now grizzled and old and doesn't recognize the threats in the world. And then now it's it's basically taking a, you know, 80s and 90s era action, fr- action franchise and, and, and putting it under the auspices of, like, 2000s era action in the same way, kind of like uh, Terminator 3 or something tried to do. So I think they're all really, like, they're different enough that I think they're going to be very interesting to talk about. Uh, and I, I'm, I totally you know, agree. I, I'm just suggesting that you guys are going to have this conversation four times. <laughs> I, think, I think it's probably right. We're, well, first of all, we're going to have it here, and then we're going to have it harder, and then we're going to have it with a vengeance, <laughs> and then we're going to have the conversation or die hard. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that the point is we have to we have to take a step back, undo some preconceptions that people have about die hard. Also, establish why we're doing this in December. Um, even though, you know, it's the obvious answer. It's a Christmas movie. Um, we're going to have to take us back and like maybe change your perspective a little bit on, on what this movie is. Um, because I think people who haven't seen it recently or just taking it as like an, just like an awesome rad movie, don't think about the things that it does that the, all of the ripoffs don't. And don't think about the fact that this movie is very, very different from the, uh, action franchises that had surrounded it. Even yes. even as it was being sold as uh, Rambo in a skyscraper, and they they yeah. barely sold any of the humor or the comedy in the ads. Yeah, well, it really is like in the same way that you know uh, Patton Oswalt has this great essay about like the five quietest movie uh, revolutions, right? And it talks about like how Aliens uh, or the Aliens, sorry, really like was a revolution in that it kind of um, uh, made made the idea of like working in space work and they were, you know, workers on oil tankers and space isn't going to be this wonderful, fun adventure. And it's kind of the first movie or at least the first mainstream movie that really does that. And he has a whole thing about Die Hard about how like it at the time it was really looked at at like we're taking an established concept of an, of a, an action star and like that quote unquote Die Hard's revolution was this idea of keeping it all in one setting. And what Patton Oswald really, I think, effectively argues in that is like, that's not the case. Like, what made Die Hard so successful is that we had a hero who very much did not want to be the hero. He keeps trying to have other police come in and do his job. He is not interested in saving the day. And circumstances continually force him um, to, in the, uh, under the like, trappings of an 80s action movie to have to keep going back and trying again and again uh in but with a fallibility that the other 80s action stars of the time didn't have so and on top of that it's very much reads as more of a survival film than an action film uh it's very much more about him him running away uh from danger and trying to stay alive and playing occasionally playing guerrilla warfare with them but uh he is not an invincible character no he he takes his licks over and over again in a way that like we weren't seeing in commando uh you weren't seeing in a a lot of these movies um actually uh particularly the rambo sequels where you're expecting this like force of american might to just step in and resolve the situation in this movie hans gruber is driving the fucking movie like john mcclain is not driving the movie john mcclain is constantly 
uh, being undermined by everyone around him, yeah. even <laughs> supposed allies like Ellis. Well, and that in some ways it really it, it reminds me more, um, and it just so happens I'm going through the Indiana Jones movies with my with my oldest daughter. Like it reminds me more of the movie serials um, and the Indiana Jones type action movies than like eighties big muscle Schwarzenegger Stallone action movies. And that like Indiana Jones is constantly getting bested and beat up and hurt, and like he gets out of it and lives to fight another day. But, you know, he's not like, a, I'm going to walk through you like a wall, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is what Her- Werner Herzog famously said in all his action movies, because I think that's the voice I did. Um, but <laughs> but uh, my point, of course, is that, yeah, it really um, – you're right, though, Peter. Like, it was marketed as um, an 80s action movie, and it really is, and it really – uh, I think for the better kind of changes the direction of both the types of stars that end up being in action movies. And also fuck, there's, a, there's enough good ripoffs. you know, Die Hard is a template movie and there's enough good ripoffs of Die Hard, like a, you know, you know, stuck on a bus with speed that like, it also, I think inspired a little bit more creativity in the, in, in the genre and by establishing like, let's just make a really good setting that is dynamic enough to to carry us through, and I, I you know, Peter, I'm, I'm I'd be shocked if you don't have thoughts on that because you know you are of our of the two of us are someone, especially when it comes to like action movies and genre movies, that like having a space that you understand is so critical. And holy shit, do we understand uh, the the office building in Die Hard, Fox oh, Plaza. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's it's it's uh, that's another thing to note. It's a real building. Um, yep. The main level of you know the the uh, Mr. Tagaki's building in the Nakatomi Plaza. That like main level is uh, a set, but uh, much of the sequences are about John McClane running around the building, navigating spaces, and buildings tend to have like you know uh, an understandable geography. Uh, so you don't get confused, so they're not labyrinthian. Um, and because of that, like, he he gets off the elevator, he does some cool shit, and then all of a sudden, in the background, you see the elevator light ping, and you instantly know that bad guys are about to fill the floor. And it's not just because it's an elevator and they're not supposed to be people on this floor, but because you understand the space itself. Um, yeah. And, like... Uh, you know, there's there, like there's a lot of ripoffs of Die Hard or Die Hard Anna, Die Hard Anna. I don't want to say they're all bad, but most of them uh, are bad. Uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 well, I think that's true of most of like any when so you know when you it's like most of the Jaws ripoffs are are bad. Most of the there's like Indiana three Jones good shark movie. movies in general. Yeah, but like I do think like I like what's the Van Damme movie Sun Death where it's like Die Hard in an ice hockey and, arena. Yeah, there we yeah. Go. Um, like you know, I I think they they had enough of like that concept that it did open up the door for some for some. I mean, I I literally think the poster for Speed said Die Hard on a bus <laughs> and Speed <laughs> rules. You know. Yes. Yes. Um. And and, and like the uh you know the the one that I think speaks to me the most. Um, is The Rock. Oh, Uh, yeah. I think that's the one that speaks to me most because they, weirdly enough in that movie, they do give you a great sense of of place, which is not true of pretty much any other Michael Bay movie. 
And it's also yeah, funny it, because I mean, they Joel, like, tried to make it the most complex labyrinth of pipes, like sewer yeah. system that ever existed. I think that like Michael Bay trying to do that gave us a great understanding of exactly where everything was. I mean, as someone who just watched Die Hard 2, we haven't recorded the episode yet, but just watched it. I like you saying that makes me realize how much like The Rock is almost a stealth remake of Die Hard 2. (laughs) It has a lot of the a lot of the same uh, trappings. But I actually think that's a good point. Like Joel Silver, obviously, is a producer on on Die Hard. And he, you know, he is really like the. The next era of action movies becomes the like, oh, we're going to have Nicolas Cage as the leading man and they're going to be stuck on the prison and stuff like that. I, You know, e- even when they're not a direct ripoff, I do think the type of action stars that we got in the 90s uh, reflected the Bruce Willis template more than the or att- attempted to uh, do the Bruce Willis template more than the the super muscle man um, template. And I think as a result, we got. Uh, and I, you know, I I like I love a lot of Schwarzenegger and Stallone stuff, so I, I don't mean this insulting, but I don't know how it couldn't come across that way. I think we got a better caliber of acting in our action movies as a result, as people tried to find like, oh, we can have good actors who then also have to punch things and use their guns, like, like that's tell a genuine joke too, which is yeah, you know, a little bit of a deviation. Yeah, yeah, so let's uh, quickly... It's not a throw to... a knife through a guy and tell him to stick around style joke. Yeah. It's, it's an actual, to... it's an actual like, Ice human to reaction you. to something. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you guys um, are, like, once again, far more sophisticated movie watchers than I am. I never realized that, like, Peter, like, the sense of space in two is probably the reason I hate it the most. Like, the church doesn't make any sense relative to, like where they are in the airport and how they get to like mm-hmm. the terminal, like, you know, to lay a trap, like all of it, it feels like completely wrong to me. And like, I realized that that might be why I dislike that the, of the diehard movies. That is, I, I think Freddie you're Roland right. I mean, I, a... Dull, Dullis international is, is a huge, right? Like, and some <laughs> of it doesn't really make like oh. airports always have weird nooks and crannies that don't make a lot of sense. Cause you're just going from terminal to terminal. So, ha- I mean, having just watched that, I, here's an I, abandoned I, I, church, yeah, right? Like yeah. what, what, what is, yeah, that's a, that feels like Rennie Harlan, Rennie Harlan has a, 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 a wonderful sense of forward momentum. Snow, snowy churches. <laughs> he loves, loves churches. Um, Rainier Holland has a wonderful sense of forward momentum, um, but it doesn't mean that you, when you're watching one of his movies, you necessarily feel um, grounded. And what's uh, ironic about this movie, and I, not, maybe not ironic, but it, what's interesting is that like surprising is that this movie was directed by John McTiernan, um, and John McTiernan did Predator, and yeah. Predator is one of the few movies to ever humble Arnold, yeah. um, because. Even in Sixth Day, where he's like supposed to be, uh, you know, your average Joe. Uh, my clone wait, is fucking my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Even in that, he's still like somehow a crack shot and taking care of guys, and he grasps the plot really quickly. In, in Predator, um, they have the opening salvo, which is basically a parody of eighties action movies. Like it's ba- it's basically like, oh, you're expecting Commando here. And then the thing that rules about Predator is that after, like, the first act, the Predator just decimates the crew and it turns into a survival movie. And it's very much about Arnold on his back haunches. And then he manages to take down the Predator um, when he finally, finally figures out the cloaking trick with the mud. Like, 
that's that's why Predator works this much later is because like you're actually seeing a human and, and vulnerable side of Arnold um, that that like you only really see in his like comedies. Yeah. Um, and also, I realize we, we've launched so into this and I think that's going to I mean, I am so excited to talk about this movie. If you haven't figured it out, uh, Bill Fox is our guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bill. Well, welcome to the show, and just being kind of part of of things. I think you've been on enough that um, the people know when you're here. But yeah, in case you they don't, don't make it past uh, my intro, so I'm trying a different name to increase yeah, you their listenership. Use, you didn't even use your name in the intro, but yes, Bill Fox, a longtime guest, Spooktober friend and buddy, and a real life bonding friend with Peter. Uh, <laughs> when I'm not working, as we covered before the podcast. Sorry, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, but yeah, so uh, I, I think we're going to get into uh, Bill and Peter have actually watched this movie many times together. But I, you know, one of the other things before, as like setup, I think why Peter and I really want to do this movie not just from a christmas month although that was just a good month for us to, to slot it in is that i do think that this movie has a ton of cultural baggage and it's not necessarily like negative baggage or anything like that but it is just a movie that is between its like memification and i think overuse in pop culture it's easy to forget how fantastic this movie is like you know we've we've had to endure 20 years or 10 years of like did you know die hard's a christmas movie and then you know the the parodies of that meme of like did you know everyone knows die hard's a christmas movie but did you know it's a pretty good action movie as well like you know that that has become omnipresent dude bro saying uh trying to you know be like uh a little bit too edgy and be like you know my favorite christmas movie is actually die hard um it's also just a easy touch point in tons of pop culture shows. Like, you know, I I remember Friend, uh, Friends specifically is a is a good example of one where all the you know all the main characters, the uh, or at least the boy main characters, uh, their favorite movie was Die Hard. They would talk about it all the time. Uh, Ross had a joke where he came up with the concept on a napkin and it was stolen from him, and it's just like it's such a common cultural touch point. That I think it has it's it's everyone knows what Die Hard is. Most people, if they haven't seen it, they probably feel like they've seen it. What you know, eighties action movie. Everyone knows who Bruce Willis is. He's stuck in a building. And I think what surprises me each time about Die Hard, a movie I've probably seen forty or fifty times at this point, is how it overcomes all that to truly like. Um, to truly kind of meet its like the expectations and exceed it. It is a movie that like actually lives up to its, I think, cultural stamp in the same way uh, that, uh, you know, you know, a RoboCop or a Star Wars or some of these other things that you just are so commonplace, you can forget how fucking good the movies are in a way that a lot of that stuff doesn't like Peter, you and I covered Predator uh, as part of our Predator 2 episode. Uh, in like the first 10 episodes of the show. And Predator is actually a really good example of a movie that has a really big cultural touch point. But the movie itself is like, okay. Like the last 20 minutes rule, a lot of it's boring. I think all of us on that episode agreed Predator 2 was a better movie and more enjoyable throughout. 
And I, I just think that's common because, uh, you know, everyone knows Die Hard. Why would you even need to pay attention and talk about Die Hard? Everyone knows what it is. And I, I think what we're trying to do in this month is not just remind people that basically all the sequels are worthwhile, but also try to, you know, look at Die Hard with fresh eyes and kind of go, holy shit, like there is a reason everyone talks about Die Hard all your favorite movie characters and TV characters listed as their favorite movie because it really is that good and that revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's uh, what I, what I think is uh, also amazing about it is as we're uh, Bill was talking about a moment ago, um, this movie is partially cobbled together through multiple script writers. Much of it was improvised, but much of the touches you remember were improvised by the cast or just made up on the day of. Um, a, a lot of the stunts almost went horribly wrong. Like, uh, people were, a lot of people in the industry had their knives out for this movie when yeah. uh, it, it was first coming out and the initial reviews were bad. Like, for a movie that is a genuine action classic that's kind, kind of unrivaled, I think. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the Ma- the Matrix and also produced by Joel Silver uh, and some other movies have that sort of claim that still, you know, these movies still carry a lot of cachet. They can still make sequels off of it. Uh, people still have warm feelings about it. The few have sort of like aged as gracefully as this movie has, though came to birth as, I guess, uh, as chaotically and it does not show in the final movie at all. Like, every, no, and it's funny reading the behind the scenes stuff on this because it, it kind of, it, it kind of is, it almost embarrasses me sometimes when we're talking about like, oh, the director made this, this cute little choice in the scene and it really helps bring the humanity there. And then you're reading the behind the scenes on these movies like Die Hard that are pretty damn well documented. A lot, a lot of people have written articles about Die Hard because it's a beloved movie. Um, and it's just like, oh, yeah, that actor thought it would be funny to improvise this moment. And then, you know, the, the John McTiernan didn't think it was that funny, but the editor did. <laughs> like, that's something that, like, we always give the director credit for, but sometimes the director didn't even like it. <laughs> I mean, th- there is a lot of that. Like, this this is the example. People did have their knives out for the movie. They didn't like the that, that Bruce Willis was getting $5 million, which is, like, I, I like there's an there's an article at the time that's like that's Robert Redford money. <laughs> oh like, no. damn! <laughs> um, you gotta forget who was a movie star and who was getting the highest paychecks in 1987 um, when they were making this. Uh, and then like even the studio got really scared about Bruce Willis and all the bad press he was getting. They left him off the original poster. Uh, it just has the building and helicopters uh, circling. But yeah, it is a little bit. Of an of an accident of history that this movie ended up so perfect, but I also like, you know, it. I think the fact that it's it has aged better than a lot of its contemporaries, and some of that is due to like it doesn't have a lot of the um, stuff that makes you kind of cringe when you're watching an '80s movie. Like I like Lethal Weapon, Die Hard's way better than than Lethal Weapon. Um, yeah, we need to talk about that a little bit because I think I, we don't need to get into it significantly. But I think Lethal Weapon is a movie I like better. But Die Hard is a better made movie. Interesting. And then I think even like That's Beverly Hills wrong. Cop, a movie. Uh, even <laughs> like, I mean, I love Lethal Weapon. I, those are other movies that I can that I you know have some affection for for all the sequels. Although I think as a whole, the series uh, 
the series is uh, Die Hard is much better. But I also think even like Beverly Hills Cop, a movie that I really like, that was also like a huge '80s, uh, you know, action movie. It has uh, besides like the stuff of like uh, gay stereotypes and misogyny and all the stuff that's unfortunately somewhat omnipresent in a lot of those '80s action movies. It also, I think, both those movies have more lulls, more like '80s lulls, like. Mel Gibson's darkness is is a little more eye-rolling, especially based on what we know today. And Beverly Hills Cop has, like, whole sections where it just stops being fun and gets a little bit too plotty, and the movie doesn't quite know how to balance that, too. And, I I, like, I think Die Hard is a movie that not only does it not really have any of the, the typical 80s, like, homophobia or misogyny for the most part, it also doesn't have like i think because it's copying the the kind of like or or taking a like a a plot structure more from that like hero gets into trouble barely escapes oh here's the new trouble approaching him uh the serial adventures the raiders of the lost ark type mold more than 80s action movies it still feels fresh and exciting you know 30 plus years later yeah absolutely and it, and the fact that they're produced by the same person Joel Silver uh, among other people, um, and that they both take place at Christmas time. That was actually a stipulation on the original scriptwriter. Um, yeah, that it was I saw t- that. took place in in L.A. like um, at Christmas time uh, because the producers liked the contrast. Um, yeah, like I, I think <laughs> they're like open with Run DMC. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lethal Weapon is a more Christmassy movie though. Oh, hundred percent. Like it's, it's. I actually think Die Hard Two is a more Christmassy movie, just because there's snow and sweaters, <laughs> and like a lot of other Christmas trappings. But it is it it and like the it, it it's um it's it's a little cringe. I think when you there's um it's a little cringe when there's just like a, a straight white guy who's just like my favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard, but like. The legitimate truth there is that, like, I do like watching this movie every Christmas season. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it does. It's an excuse to watch it. it, it, Whether or not it gives me the Christmas joy, um, or not is, is, uh, even somewhat irrelevant because at this point it's become a, a, a ritual, a tradition in the sense that, like, people do lots of stuff that doesn't have to do with the Christmas season around the Christmas season just because it's, like, a fun thing and, like, oh, we do this every year. Like, I, uh, I, I, I feel like it's a much better movie than the Lethal Weapon movies, like, in terms of the, the, produ- the quality of it. Um, but Lethal Weapon actually scratches a Christmas itch that this does not, actually. And, I mean, it also scratches a, like, I don't know if you have this itch, but if you, I don't, but if you do, it would 100% scratch the Mel Gibson cries and puts a gun in his mouth in a motorhome inch. <laughs> <laughs> I also also like there's <laughs> that movie because the movie that's, was written that's him by putting who it was written by, um it also has a whole bunch of homophobia in it, uh which uh, you know, you can say it doesn't age well, but there's certain homophobic lines that you can't really hear until no. you get the Blu-ray and a nice speaker system. Yeah, we, we, ta- we talked um, about that. Which I discussed in early the episode, yeah. and I was like, like that's what he's saying to Murta? Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? It's, it's all, gay it's to all. put your friend out who's on fire? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, there's, there's a little Who too wrote much it? I did think, like, in some ways, this is a sequel to our Shane Black Christmas month, because uh, even though... Um, like like the Shane Black Christmas movies, this movie is also set at Christmas, and uh, I would have to assume Shane Black saw it and 
yeah. probably went like, oh, shit, this is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and- he did work with John McTiernan just a year earlier. So I think I think it's not too much of a tinfoil hat thing to say that Shane Black saw this movie in 1988 and went, <laughs> oh, that was a good movie. A movie that was a pretty sizable hit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the kind of goofy background on, on, uh, this movie. So, uh, <laughs> I wish I, I almost Peter, I like, I thought of it way too late, but I was like, <laughs> like by, by way too late, I mean like two days ago, I'm like, fuck, I should get the book and read it before this episode. Uh, and obviously, uh, you can't do that. Like you can't read a 300 page book in two days when you have a job and a family. You can, you yeah. just can't be very good at all of them. <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to you're gonna have to make some sacrifices somewhere and if uh roderick thorpe's book nothing lasts forever needs to take top of the pile over your stupid kids i mean no you, you blame family like you, you blame work to get away from your family and then you're just really bad at your job so in theory you know you're forgiven eventually by your family and you've only burned one out of two so it's not that bad <laughs> well the the funniest thing about Nothing Lasts Forever, Peter, which I'm sure you're getting to, is that it is a sequel to a um, book called The Detective. 1966 book, The Detective. Which which was made uh, – which so the whole point of this is that like this character who is renamed John McClane uh, for Die Hard, his name in the book is Joe Leland. Awful. Uh, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I don't think Die Hard survives if Bruce Willis is named Joe Leland. Nope. <laughs> just just – uh, but um, he's an older, like he's an older detective who's like you know kind of too old for this shit. Um, and that book, the detective from 1966, was made into a movie. Did you see that, Peter? <laughs> yes. Wait, call, call, call the movie. The, call or the detective. Saw that it was made into a no. movie. No, it was made. Yeah, it was made into a movie. Uh, in 1968, uh, called the detective, starring uh, 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 Frank Sinatra. Oh, Blue Eyes himself. So in in like a very real way, this is kind of like a a, a a a red dragon or not a manhunter science of the lamb situation. But technically, Bruce Willis in Die Hard is playing Frank Sinatra's character uh, from twenty years ago in the detective. Well, I mean, <laughs> isn't that true that they offered Frank Sinatra the role because of that? Like he had first option yeah. on the sequel or something. Yeah, he he. Uh, yeah, uh, that'd be amer- amazing if they wrote a special version of the script that's just him doing all old people. Well, shit. he was like seventy uh, something at the time, so it's like it would have been fantastic. Yeah. Like Crohn. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, fucking ventilation. There's, there's a, I mean, there's a. There, there's there. We could do a whole month on like uh, this guy's too old for this shit. We could do like a late era Roger Moore Bond. Um, oh yeah, late era John Connery Bond. Late era Pierce Brosnan Bond. They really did not put these guys uh, away with dignity, huh? Uh, it's always scary to change bonds. <laughs> can't change bonds midstream. Um, but yeah, the they when the the, the movie uh, Die Hard was being made, they had to give first rights of refusal to Frank Sinatra, who I imagine respond with, uh, "Who are you and what are you doing in my house?" Um, yeah. Just a funny. Yeah, a funny to be clear, that was not a joke. Over. They they did do that, right? I did read that. Yeah. That's uh, something I read in multiple places because it didn't sound real. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they tried to get all the people that you'd expect in this movie. Like, they tried to get Stallone. They tried to get Schwarzenegger. Um, they had Robert which, Redford money. I mean, they could have gotten anyone. 
it is like surprising this movie that like exemplifies a switch in what an action star could be in the 80s really came about because the action stars of the 80s said no thank you yeah but like how much of that like do we really put on the script or on like the director or you know what i mean because wasn't it originally supposed to just be terrorists and you know if your lead can't deliver kind of the the comedic points right like a lot of this stuff like yeah he's gonna take his licks but like Arnold would get up and be like, it doesn't hurt, right? And like, so who really drove kind of, I mean, obviously some of it is in the writing, but some of it I think is probably, you know, in the ad lib that Peter talked about or in kind of the director's vision. Yeah, it is a little hard to gauge because we know that these other people were offered the job first, but then Bruce Willis kind of became the big thing. So Bruce Willis is, you know, uh, on one of the most popular shows that probably no one has watched because it never was available on any streaming platform and is now out of print on DVD. So unless you grew up a little older than us, you probably never watched it. But Moonlighting, a show that I actually know quite a lot about and would like to watch because I find the whole thing very fascinating. But um, you know, he was he was that was kind of his first uh, role. He was basically a nobody. Uh, as a matter of fact, Sybil Shepard was the big star, and Bruce Willis was like the other, and Bruce Willis, like Moonlighting was a Sybil Shepard vehicle. Uh, he, you know, he, the show's a huge hit, Bruce Willis kind of takes off, and this is his first major starring role in a movie in 1988. And uh, the student, like, I, I'm very unclear. Like, I, I got all the parts about they gave him $5 million. There was a lot of, like, how dare you give this guy $5 million, this TV star, and it sets a bad precedent and all this other bullshit stuff. What, I, what I've never been quite able to figure out, and maybe I just didn't read hard enough, Peter, so maybe you can answer, is why they offered him $5 million. Yeah, I was trying to figure this out, too, because why not $2.5 million? That's still an yeah. excessive amount of money. And TV st- – because th- th- most articles that I read at the time were basically like – uh, expressing a somewhat confusion because uh, this was an era, as, as most people probably recognize, TV stars rarely made the successful jump to film. There's Shelley Long and all sorts of SNL uh, actors. SNL actors generally fail to make the jump. Um, and, uh, David uh, David Caruso famously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the number one show and to star in Jade. Yeah, yeah. I thought about it a lot, though, like... If they really went after the other actors first, like, presumably, somehow the bogey got out there, right? Like, they probably offered, maybe not Frank Sinatra, but, like, their first and second choice, somehow, it got out that the bogey was at $5 million. So, if you're smart, like, you know they've got the budget. Why would you ever agree to do the movie for less, right? It's- you think it's like a Santa Claus situation where, like, his quote is $5 million? So that even if he does a bad job, they have to pay him that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So I was trying to figure this out as well. And the answer I basically got was it seems like uh, was good negotiation tactics. And also that the movie was in a not very appealing, sexy state when it went into production. So a lot of these actors turned down money and then they needed a pr- they needed a movie to fill this slot and uh, some good uh, agenting um stepped in and all of a sudden oh wait bruce willis is getting paid the same amount as a as a dustin hoffman action star dustin hoffman (laughs) 
And I think uh, I was looking down the list of people that 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 were supposed to play John McClane, and it's, you know, this is this is always a thing. I think we sometimes avoid talking about this on the show because um, the, some of this shit is like it's complete bullshit. It's like this person had a lunch with the producer to talk about lots of projects, and then they happened to talk about Die Hard for five minutes, and then the, the actor said no, or like uh, the producer sent the script to the actor, and then the actor was on vacation and took a week to respond. Like so the, the, the sort of uh, Hollywood reporting stuff can very often lead to <laughs> misconceptions about that someone was actually being considered or actually considered the role, when in reality it's just like, everybody's talking about this fumke. <laughs> yeah like people toss names around to yeah. to to raise their own star or to make their project sound more sexy or they toss around names like arnold schwarzenegger to get uh somebody who really doesn't it, sees himself as a rival to arnold to to sign up when in reality like uh you know maybe arnold didn't even read the script the, but of this list now after that rant uh the people i actually think would have been pretty good in this movie were uh nick nolte and james Conn. I think both of them probably could have made a pretty interesting Die Hard movie. I don't know about Nick Nolte. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think... But we're talking know, 48 he, hours era Nick Nolte. He's got the smarmy, sarcastic he's, nature. He's still hot. He's still got a, li- a lithe sort of quality to him. Like, But you know what he doesn't have? Um, and I actually, I think Khan could have done this a little bit better, but I, I mean, there's a reason why I think Bruce Willis, I think we'd all agree is the best, even out of those three. I think Nick Nolte is too calm. Like the thing about like, uh, and even when, and even when he's like annoyed, it's more of like a, ah, shit, man. Like it's, it's like Nick a, Nolte is like defeated the moment he wakes up in the morning. Yeah. I don't know it's if not like works, this, but it's definitely, he's definitely more humbled in a way that I, and more sarcastic in a way that I, I, I think maybe works. Yeah. There, there is an intensity to Bruce Willis. Like the defeats really feel like defeats. He like, he's like close to tears. He's frustrated. It's in his face. He's yelling. Like, I think that is so important to just recognizing how, uh, how all these moments are just not working out for him, which really make, make the movie that, uh, I, I think Nolte would have had a real problem, uh, pulling off. I'll see like Nolte's anger, like, I don't know. He's not nearly like you can buy John McLean's like, I'm going to say fuck you with this body that, you know, says now I have a podcast. Ho, ho, ho. Right. To me, like, I just don't buy Nolte like expressing his anger in that way. Like, he needs to be, you know, crushing small animals. More bullish. <laughs> I also think there's that part, you know, where the. Ca- the where uh, the cavalry's uh, arrived and they're like, you can sit down, partner. The cavalry's on his way, and he sits down to have that cigarette. And then he, re- you know, in the movie, Bruce Willis, John McClane realizes that the cavalry a- actually isn't going to help, and so he has to get up and do stuff. I kind of imagine Nick Nolte being like, "Yeah, I already sat down. <laughs> uh, gonna... I'll get up when the cigarette's done." Look, yeah, the cavalry's here. They win some, they lose some. I, you know, I did. Everything I'm gonna do today—that's that's just what it is. Let's just put a button. Just on fucking, it. I'm not getting <laughs> up. Fucking shoot that. him! I don't know the guy. I'm gonna <laughs> piss and shit here on this lumber that they're gonna remove. Like it's fine. Yeah. yeah um. And then it's like ho ho ho. Uh, I'm out of cigarettes. Can you put them on the, the elevator and send them up again? Ho ho ho! I'll trade you the machine gun I found for one more smoke. <laughs> 
Guys, I retired. Yeah, they, yeah. they said the cavalry's coming. I'm sitting down. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's I think kind the, of the point is that like he, Bruce Willis does have a sort of like it's not that I, I by the time we get to the fourth movie, one of my problems is that Bruce Willis has kind of become the invincible uber killer. He still has the sense of humor and all that, and he's still like trying. But like by the time we get to the fourth movie, he's like I don't feel like he's he's on the ropes as much. In this movie, it feels like he's always on the ropes. He's always on the run. He's always in a survival mode. Um, and, and like, Bruce Willis kind of works for that. Because even though Bruce Willis is, like, a man in very good shape, you know, for, uh, you know, normal uh, normal people's standards. By yeah, he's not a European bodybuilder. <laughs> he's not. Yes, he's not by the Arnold, uh, Van Damme, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone um, era, uh, that of that era, um, people... Uh, he's not a, a bulk guy. He's just sort of like, he's like a guy who like, you know, y- like you see him getting fucked around with at the bar a little bit. And then he like, get, he like turns at you just, just the right direction. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, <laughs> the muscles in your neck just rippled. Now I'm scared of you. <laughs> yeah. By the time he grabs a pool cue to use it in a somewhat unfair fight moment, it, it, you feel like he earned the right to use that because he got beat up a couple times. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, he is grabbing the pool cue, but they did really mess him up. So the physicality I, I, of him really, really matters. Like it's, it's it does. It, it's it's a it's just a different beast with a different actor. And so much of this movie is him alone. I forgot how long it is in this movie until he's in radio contact with uh, Al Powell, the 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 the, the flat foot cop. Yeah. Slash Reginald Phil Johnson slash, of course, the dad uh, from Carl, Family Matters, C- Carl Winslow. Yeah. Carl, they should have used that name, Carl, Carl Winslow. Winslow. I would love a connected uh, universe, Winslow-verse. except that. I mean, it does not make sense for Carl Winslow. He's a Chicago, but it also guy. doesn't Why make sense that he's having his first kid there. I felt like he's, you know, this is like the biggest problem with this movie. Is that it is a hundred percent pro cop propaganda, like in the way that most most movies where cops or protagonists are. But it has it has all the templates that like there's you know there's good smart cops that don't play by the rules. The you know that like no one understands the job. The camaraderie between Al and John is very much like you know uh, kind of like has that wire energy of like you know we we do police work and stuff like that and. Like, it does help. The one thing that I think helps it, cuts it a little bit, is that uh, it's nice that his first kill, and I think this would have been different in a lot of the Schwarzenegger versions of this movie, is like, is an accident, right? He's trying to wrestle him. His life's in in danger. He doesn't have a gun. And the guy falls down um, the stairs and gets his neck broke. Um, or his head like bashed open. There's a and couple guys. There's a couple guys that he refuses to execute. Like he refuses to execute even, Hans Gruber. A hundred percent. And I, I do think that that works for the film. That like he is not a cold blooded killer. This is not a movie where lives don't matter. The the couple of innocent people who do die in this movie uh, take a tremendous toll on Bruce Willis, the whole Ellis thing is like a thing that is like clearly Ellis is an asshole and it still is extremely painful. He still is like hurt by it. That happens a lot. You know, that that's something I, I noticed and we'll talk about in Die Hard too. Like he is in, in, a, in a very big departure from like the 80s action movies that like, Oh, sorry, that person died. I'm moving on. Like 
you know, he he is not trying to just kill the bad guys indiscriminately and say one-liners. He constantly tells people they're under arrest at, before and then they shoot at him and he shoots back. Like, again, it doesn't change the fact that it is about how, like, cops are heroes and all the uh, correct, like, propaganda that's wrapped in that in the same way, like, military movies have that and all that other shit. But, like, it is so much superior from a lot of these other movies where he, at the very least, is trying to save literally every life. Every life he doesn't save is a personal failure for him. Even the bad guys believes that he should do everything he can to uh, take them away, not just murder them indiscriminately. No, I mean, I think it works. I mean, honestly, like I, I mean, I guess it wasn't until probably rewatching it in the past, like three or four years that I became, you know, as aware of the issues as I should have been. But like, I don't think he like actually goes after anyone like i think he's always in yeah. defense and so there's that and like you know the kids thing is you know not something i've liked since i became a parent but at the same time like i also like that yeah they relate because they're both cops but like you know i i doubt that dude's carl winslow is telling every you know terrorist or potential you know inside man he gets on the radio with all these things right so like yeah. it's important i think that you set up John McClane to be that type of guy that he's going to spill his guts. And like, I do like that they help him as cheesy as it is. It just doesn't have to be shooting the dude who, you know, ran out with the chain around his neck or should have had a chain around his neck, perhaps. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of I, funny that the person who made this movie and the same person who made Predator, which is very much about uh, taking a I bunch mean, of these the big, meme, right? big macho yeah. stereotypes yeah. and tearing them to shreds. Um, particularly very colonialist, big macho stereotypes and tra- tearing them to shreds. Um, very much feels like a reaction to Vietnam. Uh, this movie as a direct allusion to Vietnam, and it's clear that McTiernan hates a- uh, Agent John, the Agent Johnson. Like, yeah, oh yeah, it's like, comical. <laughs> like, and, and it's not for typical cop movie reasons, which is like a weird pride thing, where it's like, oh fuck, the feds are here, they're gonna take over the case. In this movie, it's because the feds are fucking psychotic, and one of them makes a crack about. Um, flying, they're flying, uh, they're like Hueys up near the top of the building. And one of them says, uh, you know, I expect 20 to 25% hostage casualties. And then the other one goes, I can live with that. And then, and then, um, <laughs> one guy played by Robert Davi goes, goes like, he's like, woo, this is just like Saigon. Like he's pumped as in like a sort of like like a like a, a party memory for him is uh shooting at at people during the end, tail end of the Vietnam War. Like, can you like I can't fucking like yeah. you can't have any of those scenes and then have those dumbasses getting blown up because they refuse to listen to anybody. Um, you can't have that in the movie and then not not also see that like McTiernan does have some genuine. Uh, hatred for some of these authority figures and some of these uh, uh, these um, authority institutions with well but when, yeah but when it's about but when it's about like um you know a crack that john makes about his uh police commissioner it's very clear that what he means is ah oh, that asshole expects me to play by the rules but when he's making fun of the fbi agents he's like oh yeah a lot of these authority figures are just fucking psychopaths with a badge yeah, or just incompetence. Like, Paul Gleason, I, I love the turn for Paul Gleason in this movie, who at first is that kind of, like, 
you know, uh, shut up. I'm not going to listen to anyone. I'm the boss. I'm a, again, I'm a, I'm here for the glory. I'm here to save people. I'm not going to listen to anyone like normal, like police chief or deputy police chief, like bureaucracy and like the evil that comes through there. And I love once that he's emasculated in that role, he essentially just starts delivering the funniest lines of the movie <laughs> as he just is like a little kid who got sidelined and then just shit like in in like some perfect Paul Gleason deliveries. I can't wait to get into that. I, I don't want to ruin him at this part of the podcast because I want to get into like how funny that turn is and how great his line. Like he has the funniest lines in this movie. Oh, and, that, and there's a lot of funny lines um, in this in, he doesn't in have the, the most funny but yeah I mean, he's nope. got like his entire back half is just i mean like, he's got good ones oh, i'm just well, saying if is, we're gonna pick our favorite got, got or at the top he doesn't make my number one spot yeah i also think the thing that like you know bond movies figured this out mo like star wars figured this out um, I think, you know, uh, Die Hard 3, like, realized that, and, and Die Hard 4, for that matter, realized they needed to figure this out better after, I think, the biggest gap that we'll talk about in Die Hard 2 is that, like, you need an amazing villain. Um, Alan Rickman, this was his first movie role. He was a theater actor. Uh, they really just, like, found something amazing here. And Alan Rickman just completely, I mean, it's it, it feels almost like perfunctory to say like this is just an amazing villain performance but the way he's able to kind of hit the quiet notes um for most of it he just is calm and professional he's trying to move through something like peter just this summer like it was something that i talked about how much i liked uh, about uh, steven dorf's performance in blade is like you just don't get quiet competent villains that often in these action movies and like Hans Gruber really was the the first the first incarnation of that, especially like in loud eighties action movies that almost always needed a bombastic villain to to square off about our like you know the no nonsense like Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, type heroes. And this is also a movie that like made some quick changes near the end of production because they realized that like. They had a whole movie where the hero and the villain didn't really get any scenes together. And they didn't want to do like a Star Trek 2 where like after the movie, a producer's like, huh, should we have had Kirk and Khan ever like meet each other <laughs> or something like that? And I, I mean, obviously that movie's great and uh, it's, I'm you know, it's better for them not meeting. But they kind of wrote this scene into the movie where... <laughs> You know, near the end, the two of them get a chance to interact, and it's it's so it's so good. Yeah, yeah, it, it adds such color to it adds such color to who Hans Gruber is as a character, and it makes his villainy so much deeper. Um, and it also <laughs> it um it's fun because it's a battle of wits where you're expecting the you know the dumb everyman to get yeah. outsmarted by the guy who has a plan for seemingly everything. Um, and then you realize that, like, you don't exactly know when John McClane sniffed him out. Like, you don't know yeah. the exact moment. But, you know, at some point, he either sniffed him out or he's like, I got to put this guy through a test. <laughs> and what's a really good test is handing him an empty gun and seeing what he does with it. Have you guys heard the conspiracy theory about that? Not conspiracy theory, but, like, the cutscenes from the people talk about? No. No. Oh, so apparently 
one of the many cuts was the terrorists all synchronizing their watches. Um, and they all have like the same Tog Hero watch. Um, and apparently that's like what they synchronize. But the point is it's all the same. So then like McLean's on the radio with this guy, like we got, you know, at least seven, you know, they're European, well-funded. They've got expensive IDs and the same watch. Like he's taking like cigarettes off bodies. Apparently he looks at their watch and like, but the part where like they'd synchronize them was cut. So you don't really realize that he's putting it together, that they have the same watch. And when he hands Gruber a cigarette or vice versa, he sees the watch. And so you see him look at the watch and that's when he figured out he's a terrorist. That's I mean, that definitely seems like a more obvious like uh, plot point they could have had, but I like I like the way they leave it up to like oh because I love that he passes his test right with the Bill Clay thing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and he even he doesn't even say William because it says W M. He shortens yeah. it. He's like, well, I'm Bill, um, which shows you how good Rickman is. Yeah, it's awesome. But then also like it's so great that he's like because you do let your guard down or or put your guard up because you're like fuck. Good test, but Gruber outsmarted you, and I just love the. What do you think? I'm fucking stupid, Hans. Yeah, and I think that I think another thing that um, we're talking about this is the reason this movie is a movie that people rewatch, and the reason that this movie is two hours and twelve minutes, and it speeds the fuck by um, longer than its sequel, which is rare. And it this movie is written, yeah, um, and this movie was written, and the, even the the initial director Jeb Stewart. Uh, sorry, the initial writer, Jeb Stewart, um, said this, is that he was not really Did used to writing. Did he say, please clap? He said, please clap. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he thought that because he stole an election for his brother, George Stewart, um, that he could... Call blah, me blah, blah. Jeb! <laughs> um, that Jeb Stewart, uh, you know, he, he was more... He was more... Uh, close, uh, he was more used to, like, thriller script writing. Um, and he wanted to structure it more as a thriller. And the movie is so much better for that because it rewards you like a thriller. And the movie speeds by in the two hours and 12 minutes because it's constantly rewarding you for being for paying the fuck attention. It's not just a movie where John McClane goes from, you know, scene to scene murdering people, though it is a movie you can jump in halfway through because it is just a simple concept. Um, like the fact that he took uh, something that is so like was so common with him and his friends at the time or like you and your wife would get divorced and, or you and your wife would stay together, but she would take back her, her maiden name uh, as a, as a feminist statement um, or, you know, or maybe a career move uh, and that bothering him, like a lot of his friends and turning that into a genuine plot moment where uh, Holly yeah. knows that, that she needs to hide her identity and her relationship to John to protect him and then Ellis tries to use John McClane's identity to trick Hans Gruber, but Ellis is too dumb and coked out to realize that he's he's playing above his, the game. And then my favorite one that I've never noticed before is that uh, in the opening scene, it's just like, every time I've seen the movie, I've always been like, oh, this is just like a weird thing that a Californian guy says to him. Um he says, when you get off the plane, you go to where you're, you're going. If you want to be, you know, feel feel grounded, you go, you take your shoes off and walk around in the ground and make little balls with your feet. 
And I never somehow never caught that that's a reference to the fact that he has no shoes later and has to walk across glass and there's a shot of his balled up feet because he's fucking they're filled <laughs> so hold with glass. On. It's like the whole movie. I have no idea. Like, I don't know how you didn't get that. I actually like it's Chekhov's like how to relax your feet. Um, but it's this this movie is scripted that well where it takes these little moments that seem innocuous and also fit well with the character, right? Like he doesn't want to fly cross country. It's not just like, oh, we're going to use this later, like cross the streams and it doesn't really make sense. It totally makes sense in character that he didn't like the flight, not a huge fan, and someone recognizing that gave him some advice. And that pays off like an hour and 40 minutes later when, as you've seen him throughout the entire movie, run around in bare feet. At first you think it's just a kind of a fun image right? and they make like, jokes about it he's like yeah. he kills a henchman he's like he's got smaller feet than my sister <laughs> yeah yeah i know and but it becomes like this this huge moment that like every time i see this movie um because it's usually like you know it's a christmas time watch most of the time for me too so uh i it's a year i always think there's a image of him stepping on the glass with his feet and this movie is so goddamn effective that it's just the implication and the aftermath of him needing to walk across all that broken glass to get through the exit and it doesn't even have to show the 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 barefoot stepping on glass to uh make you think that you have the visceral experience of witness. I had the same problem. Yeah. Like I just rewatched that. I'm like where was that scene? Like I is there a different movie that I'm thinking of? Cuz like I, the exact same thing happens nope. to me. And they show you. No, it happens to me every time. And like, and, and then every time I'm like, "Oh, that's right, you don't see." You they see show him dragging his bloodied feet into the bathroom, but they yeah. don't show him actually like walking across the glass. Which is like, I wonder if that was a content cut or whatever reason they chose to do it. Uh, it it's so effective because as soon as as soon as Hans says to to Fritz like shoot the glass. Um, because he's seen that fucking the guy he's yeah. fighting has no fucking shoes and his feet are black and dirty. Um, you know exactly where this is going, whether you've seen the movie or not. I'm assuming this was somewhat intentional. Con- it contrasts with like the action movies of the '80s that we talked about, right? Like Schwarzenegger would have walked through that glass and he would have seen every moment, and he would have went, "Yeah!" His face would have turned a little red yeah. as he grit his teeth, yeah. and then he would have uh-huh. been and fine yeah, you- ten minutes later in the movie. Whereas, you know. Yeah, and somehow running like a John McClane is not, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you see a sad, like, slump of a man literally drag himself into a bathroom and, like, almost pass out from the pain. And that, like, that is the contrast. The, the other thing on that note, and then I think it's we should transition to the movie, like, I want to get back to really quick. And if we were better, better editors, I would just move this, but it takes too much time. But, you know, it does occur to me when we were talking about, like, the you know, having him be someone who is trying to save every person and who feels the pain of the deaths and the people that isn't going to save, you realize that, like, why why having a good actor and someone who can deliver that that sadness and that empathy and that performance, like, cont- contrasts so much with the, with the 80s action stars is that, you know, as I was thinking back on that conversation, like, there is parts where Schwarzenegger or Stallone or Van Damme or Seagal or whoever it is express sadness at someone not being able to save someone. The problem is because they just, they don't have that range or even, you know, they don't even approach that range. It comes across as 
glibness or something that they don't feel in the moment. And like Schwarzenegger or Stallone will be like, I hate to lose someone or, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, we lost her. Like, and then it's over and like it doesn't, the moment doesn't sit with you because you don't feel like the actor experienced any grief or pain or sadness in the moment because they're, they're you know, they can't really emote it to you as the audience member. And so this really like, I think why this works so much better and why this movie would have been so much lesser if they would have gotten some of their first choices, not Frank Sinatra, obviously, but their second, third and fourth <laughs> choices, having an actor who's able to express that depth of emotion actually makes those same types of lines and those same types of moments that maybe we did see a lot in those 80 action movies actually makes you feel the emotional weight of them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk about Die Hard some more. <laughs> yeah, let's just never stop for the next four weeks talking about Die Hard. Bill, yes. want to talk more about Die Hard? Yeah, let's do it. Which one? Uh, die uh, Hard. Hardest. But not any er. As they would call it in Germany, Die Die Hard. Yeah, just the hard. <laughs> not Z Die Hard? Sorry. <laughs> Before you give us the plot recap, because it is your week, um, side note, uh, we're not going to do alternate taglines. I always thought this movie was an anthology movie, and you're going to laugh um, because of the tagline when I, like, when I was like a, a younger kid. Um, like before, I didn't see this movie until I was in high school, but uh, the tagline for this movie was f- like something like 40 stories of sheer terror. <laughs> you know, and it has a picture of the building on the cover. I was like... Oh, I always thought. Is this just they, one of like, the in my 40? head is like. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought so. Like I, no, what I thought this hundred percent true is that like, oh, like the Bruce Willis story must have been the biggest one, and so like then they made the sequel. Like twelve year old, like trying to piece together something you've never seen and don't understand through like previews, posters, taglines, and sequels that have come out, and I, but I legitimately thought uh, for a while that. Um, the Die Hard was an anthology story about uh, 40 stories that occur in a office building <laughs> during some sort of action situation that I wasn't aware of. Man, uh, that would be exciting. Yeah, that they should make a HBO series that adapts a true life idea from a podcast. I was like, that's a lot of, like, that's three minutes of story <laughs> that bruce willis one must have been really good as we've proved from watching uh have you watched any either of the abcs of death movie i haven't i always i always plan to every spooktober yeah there was a proof with that 26 is too many stories 40 would just be uncouth that's why it, for the sequels they had out to of just pocket. pick one and stick with it as far as my brain could figure out <laughs> yeah they uh, adapted yeah they adapted um 40 stories and then they just kept the each at two hours and 12 minutes, and they just kept the the best of them. So there's 39 other versions that, of Die Hard out there that, that they just deleted. That is such a, like, I feel like this has happened my entire life where, like, just some part of my brain misfires. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like I see a tagline with it with an office building. I understand that like stories are on a building. It says forty stories of sheer terror. And I'm like, oh, it must be an anthology movie. The only thing that makes sense. My my favorite example of that is like I thought for a long time there's that part in Jurassic Park where Muldoon is like stalking the raptor <laughs> and then you know one appears off the side and he says clever girl and it the raptor eats Patrick Muldoon spoilers for Jurassic Park um I thought for the longest time that he said clever girl and there's probably just a lot of like fucking like <laughs> uh patriarchy bullshit that was ingrained in me as like an eight-year-old I thought that he thought that Ellie Sattler had disguised herself as a rattler for a second. <laughs> and like he was saying like clever girl, like, like good what going. a great you got That's your what you thought. Like that incredible. I, did, I, did you I watch have, the like, like, like opening scene? I, I saw I saw it se- yeah, I saw it seven times in theaters. It's like the, my it's my Star Wars. It's the movie to this day I've seen the most in theaters by like a long shot. And I I'm like, oh clever girl, because he thinks that Ellie Sattler who was he was watching about how she's going to get back across this raptor thing disguised yeah that's a brain fart <laughs> like every There's time this, this, i yeah. can't stop like even now i think it like how does the guy who digs up dinosaur bones know more about predator behavior than the guy who actually hunts and raises the predators like it just doesn't doesn't you know pass the well, sniff Patrick test Maldun is a, is is a relatively well-adjusted individual and alan grant really has focused his life on how do i scare kids i better learn about predators and how to how they're gonna kill them. yeah that's fair yeah that actually explains it and all patrick muldoon he logs up you know he, he clocks out at five i don't think his and, name and is then he goes muldoon. and i think that's builds I think that's like ships the eighth in a bottle lead from starship troopers <laughs> i think his name is robert muldoon uh yeah robert muldoon <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he clocks out at the uh, dinosaur town at five o'clock yeah. and, uh, he, you know, he goes to the bar and then one of the guys is like, did you hear about the Raptors? And he hates talking about work after work and he goes, Heats? Raptor, I hardly know her. Oh. As where Patrick Baldoon just, uh, he just made a rap fucks, fucks Kelly joke. Kapowski while she's dating, uh, Zach Morris. Wow. Wow. Did Raptor. That happens guys. I mean, they don't fuck because they just like kiss it was them a the raptor. Mouth quick. I know you've never seen Saved by the Bell. That's a whole thing we got to get into at some point. But it's before you, it's all right because I'm Saved by the Bell. That's the theme song, uh, right? Guitars, yeah, basically. Uh, let's before you tell the plot, uh, we didn't talk about alternate tech. Uh, you and Bill have watched this movie together. Uh, you, you. Theorize Peter three to six times, and Bill's like, "Put those numbers together, baby." Yeah, thirty six. <laughs> I, I, I think we're I think we're at high numbers. It's because this is a I you know I, I go home for Christmas every year, and uh, what that ends up being is that my everyone in my family goes to bed at nine o'clock, and then Bill and I um, drink Coors Light until five a.m., uh, and then we sleep through Play Legos. Uh, a, a lot of the daytime activities, um, family bonding. Uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, <laughs> a couple of years, our, our goal has been to build the most epic Lego thing before I have to leave on the 26th, uh, which means that we'll put on, like, Die Hard and Escape from L.A. and various Christmas movies until 5 a.m. to help keep us awake. Um, 
And this is a movie that, like, I know at least once we have watched Die Hard 1, Die Hard 2, and then we were like, Die Hard 1 is better. <laughs> and then we just watched Die Hard 1 again. Well, you got it. Like, like, you can't just sit there and play Legos. Like, this is how I, like, my numbers get so high on certain movies. Like, I just need it on. And so, like, that's how I watch my movies a lot of times. Like, it's rare that I will sit down with the intent to just watch a movie and do nothing but watch. Like I can't, I can't do. I heard it. is a, but it's a, it is a rare movie where, like, I, you know, I, I mentioned that friends joke uh, off screen of like them rent thinking they're renting uh, Die Hard and Die Hard Two, only to realize they've they've rented Die Hard twice and they're fine with that. Uh, this is one of the only movies where like that joke actually isn't like a lame, uh, lame eye rolling joke because. Yeah, you know, when I'm done watching Die Hard, I can go for Die Hard again. <laughs> exactly. It just works. I can throw Die Hard back on. Like, it is, it really is that movie that you could just watch over and over. But Peter, if we haven't, if you don't know somehow, what the fuck yeah. happens in the motion picture? Die Everyone knows the plot of Die Hard, so I'll just, you know, I'll make it quick. Um, retired NYPD Detective Joe Leland is visiting the 40-story <laughs> office headquarters of the Klaxon Oil Corporation in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve, where his daughter, Stephanie Leland Gennaro, works. While he is waiting for his daughter's Christmas party they, end, they, a group of- Hold on, they kept the last name? <laughs> well, yeah, like I don't know. Maiden name? <laughs> it's his daughter's maiden name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, yeah. <laughs> or I guess his daughter's married. Yeah. Now. Okay, sorry, go on. Go on. I mean, we all know what happens in the in the motion picture Die Hard, but please continue. <laughs> um so yeah, that was actually the, the, the beginnings of the plot, Nothing Lasts Forever, the book. Um, which is very depressing. He does not save her at the end. Um The real the real story, the real die hard. Spill. We gotta figure out how he gets in that airport for the sequel then, or the the the, the conclusion of the the trilogy. Oh yeah, the John Leland trilogy. <laughs> I, I I was cons- I, I like it's called the, this. He writes the sequel called Fifty Eight Minutes that they make die they base Die Hard Two off. Oh god, <laughs> it's wild shit. Uh, and he wrote these books far apart too. Um, but yes, so the plot to Die Hard uh, is that John McClane is a NYPD cop. He's coming out to LA where his children and his separated wife uh are living um i don't think they're quite she's separated she she completed mitosis (laughs) yes um they're not divorced they're just separated at this point right yeah they're definitely i mean she just took a job and it's like i'm taking the job he's she she separated and changed her name but they're still married i don't know i don't Um, know that they're like separated like had the conversation other than like he didn't move yeah, I get, yeah, that's the sense I get too. Like, well, I'm taking this job and I'm going to take the kids. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm not like, going. I, I have a, I have I have a, a six job month here. case log that I got to close out. Like, I got to yeah. prosecute yeah. the bad and guys. I, I, I also like you know, sure, like that's <laughs> that's not that's not a reason why you can't st- you can't stop being a cop. Like the 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 um the the um district attorney figures some shit out. Um, the uh well, I, Die Hard too. He announces himself as an LA cop at the beginning, uh, and then all the East Coast cops are mean to him. Oh yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Um, you can't win this John McClane guy. You can't win. So uh, we had Pow! one of our close friends um, uh, dated a guy who uh, eventually uh, they're related. They broke up for various reasons, but um, this happens on in the, the list. Movie? He was he on the list was uh, he became a cop. Okay. And um, 
One thing I asked him because one of the I asked him because like he always had aspirations to move outside of Chicago, and I was mm-hmm. like, uh, "Could you just like pick up and move to a small town in Michigan and and become a cop?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would be like a pay cut and blah 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 blah, but like it'd be very complicated. Like the the system is not really built for cops to like just become cops somewhere else. Like you kind of do just it's not a full restart." But, like, it is, like, a career killer, whereas, like, in all of your careers, in my career, you can, um, you can just, like, fucking, like, yeah. change jobs, get a pay raise, suddenly people respect you more, um, whereas, but for being a cop, like, you lose a lot of your connections, like, uh, you Oh, you're go- from Chicago, this is East Lansing, motherfucker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you think you can survive... In East Lansing? There's also, like, the whole issue of East Lansing's pension doesn't reflect yes. what, you know... Yeah. I don't know. I wanted another Albuquerque's pension does, right? So yeah. you lose, like, your 24 years of service and you can retire. You start over. And you don't get, maybe even get paid out on your other pension. So it's it can be tough to move as a cop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're kind Ideally, of, they another, just it's stop the, being cops. That's one of the many Which reasons is also hard why for them. It's, it's, like, hard for them to leave is also, like, you stop being a cop and then it's like, well, the, what the fuck do you do other than, like, private security? Well, also, right? I got like, underpaid the, my entire career, but I had this nice pension. And if I retire now because I don't want to be in this awful state of affairs of police work, you have zero retirement. Unless you, like, saved on top of what you thought you were getting from a pension. Yeah, I agree. Ideally, you die on the job. <laughs> How do you die? On the job. Uh, sorry, do you die soft? Um, I think a lot of these guys die soft, to be honest. <laughs> like, I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but yeah. Um, but yeah. More so- people die delivering pizzas and they're fucking babies about yeah. it all the time. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, but the but yeah, like the, the that whole thing where he's talking about, like, I got a caseload and all that. That's just like... That's just writers not doing, like, even five minutes of research. There are, like, legitimate reasons why him moving across the country would be, like, pretty, you know, pretty rough. Um, and some of it has to do with, uh, but the real reason that that John cites is, yes, he has a caseload. Um, you know, if you he, he quit, loves, all those murderers are going free. He loves New York. <laughs> um, he, you know, he's clearly, like, an East Coast guy. And then on top of that... Um, he has some insecurity about his wife suddenly being like a very successful, uh, a very successful like woman in a business environment who suddenly makes a shit ton more than him, has better job security than him, has a safe job, uh, what well, should be a safe job. Um, and like, it feels like the, the world is moving on without him. Um, yeah. they've, you know, they, something is has changed in their relationship some sort of power dynamic and and his sort of maybe traditional view of what marriage should be uh has 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 flipped a little bit even though he's trying really hard to be proud of her um so uh he goes out to visit her because of a screw up (laughs) i think he wasn't supposed to be invited like um he says yeah yeah he says like somebody accidentally screwed up in the you know the computer system and invited me to to this christmas party and then was like a pay like a first class because i mean her uh her boss says mr uh takashi is like takagi um, that's a joke right sorry go ahead no i don't i don't think it is a joke i think like 
Because that's why he doesn't have necessarily full plans and hasn't necessarily like he's talking about staying with everything like a he's talking about staying with one of his retired cop friends. Paloma. Um. Yeah. Interesting. There's my brain fart. Yeah. So I think they're just like, oh, we're sending the invites out to. Oh, and your husband doesn't live here. We know you. We moved you across the country. Like it's not actually like that uncommon when people move across the company country like for a job for someone to stay behind to sell a house or. You know, something like that. So even though, like, there's – that's not the reason why McLean is still back in New York. Like, it, I do get the impression that they're like, oh, yeah, well, we'll get you up here for Christmas, especially the company Christmas party. Like, you know, we're, we're going to, we're gonna you know, treat you right. You moved across the country for this job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alternate tagline. Yeah. Dad's coming home for Christmas. All I want for Christmas <laughs> is dad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, okay, so I, uh, yeah, so he's, he's, you know, he's out there, he doesn't necessarily feel welcome, but Holly is like, you know, you did get on the plane, like, that means something, the fact that you, like, came out to, to see us and the kids when, like, you and I didn't even, like, really make up, like, you're, you're trying, uh, and they have, like, a, at one they get to, he gets picked up at the airport, they go to the party, the party's kind of, like, a little wild, um, also, <laughs> I, I, there's no other place for this. Do any fucking companies, unless you guys are, like, working on Christmas Eve at the office, do any companies have fucking Christmas parties at, like, night on Christmas Eve? No. Like, I I cannot think of, I couldn't think of a single situation. It's well, always, like, two weeks earlier because people travel and, like, people take time off. People blow PTO around the holidays. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, I, I think it's just another shot, you know, being culturally insensitive to the Japanese. It's like they're trying real hard to do Christmas. It's like singing in the Christmas story. <laughs> no, I think actually <laughs> I wasn't serious or Catholic uh, being. But uh no, I think what yeah. you talk about is cuz this was in an era where like Japan is, was is very much about Japanese fear, but this movie makes like yeah. one crack about it and then it moves on. Yeah, this movie's I mean everyone the villain in this movie is a hardcore capitalist fighting against other capitalists. Uh which also like to your point Peter is like you know, McTiernan clearly has a lot of like strong views on like American imperialism and capitalism and all that kind of stuff, and like um, the fact that they they make uh, they make uh, Gruber so hollow and just being like, "Well, I'm I'm basically just doing the same thing that the that this corporation is. I'm just doing it a different route." Yeah, yeah. I, I, just while we're here, uh, they the movie is 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 definitely referencing the. The supposed takeover of Japan, uh, J- the Japanese yeah. takeover of America because, you know, um, the greater prevalence in pop culture because of uh, consumer goods markets being dominated by the Japanese, notably the auto industry. We talked about this a little bit with Collision Course. Like, there's a genuine fear among a lot of uh, white people that uh, the Japanese are going to take us over. And they, they took uh, our they relied on a lot of Sorry. It, it relied on a lot of, of yeah, it relied on a lot of really gross stereotypes, and it didn't happen. Um, and a lot of people were discriminated against in the meantime. Um, so, um, this movie makes one crack about it, and he's like, "Oh, we couldn't get you in World War II, so we got you with tape decks." Like, ha ha ha. And then the movie moves on, and like Tagaki is not a villain in this movie in like any sense, any more than any other you know businessman would be. He like. Stands up to, like, go try and negotiate with Hans Gruber. He won't give him access to the vault. Uh, and then Hans Gruber executes him. He's just doing kind of what John is doing and what the cops are doing. Like, you don't negotiate with terrorists. Like, the, 
this is not seen as like a evil or cowardly act. This is just him standing up to Hans Gruber and he's the first yeah. one to do it. So guess what? Uh, he doesn't know that Hans Gruber when he does, when he says there's not going to be a four, he literally means it. I always like never understood though, like how he watches the dude doing a line off Holly's desk and like just moves on. Like that was like the one weird thing to me. Like it's like out of character for like, the boss guy not to like say anything about the rampant coke use at the christmas i mean party. it is the, it's it's an 80s office christmas party like i like, it just, i don't know it, it, it felt weird like me. i mean everything else maybe it was just the 80s i mean but like very early in I, my I, career like you could find coke use still in banking and like in the office and like it's not like crazy to me like what they're trying to portray but like the boss like who's like very honorable person by most regards like not like at least pretending i don't know it felt weird i don't know i do think even in those circumstances like i mean i've been at an office christmas party where people have gotten way too drunk and it's oh, yeah. like awesome uh, you know they usually don't deal with it at the party <laughs> yeah you deal it's with it later of, like, yeah you deal with it later unless the person has to be like removed <laughs> even then you deal with, you're just like okay well why don't you come home take a cab and we'll talk about it on monday yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I the this office party is uh is like wild. Um, but they um, so anyways, uh, John is getting cleaned up in like the private bathroom when Hans Gruber storms in with his crew, uh, eliminates the entire security staff, takes over the building, takes the entire party as hostages minus John, takes Mister Takagi, he ref- and asks Mister Takagi for the the codes to the safe. Um, he he refuses. He's executed. Holly Gennaro, who's John McLean's uh, separated wife, uh, becomes sort of like the de facto head of the the group. Um, people are looking to her for some leadership. She begins to low key negotiations with Hans Gruber, but conceals the fact that John McLean is her husband there. And John is immediately like fighting against his nature. He's like, "You should have been a hero there." And he's like, "No, then you'd be fucking dead too." Like the, the one of the secret weapons of this movie is John McClane talking to himself. Uh yeah. and then eventually that transitions to him talking to Al Powell. Um to to uh to Carl Winslow. And uh it's a much catchier name. I'm just going to say Carl Winslow. Um and I think right. I think canonically he can be Carl Winslow. Yeah. yeah. So this is the sort of thing where, like, uh, the first chunk of the movie, it's just they, they blocked down the building and no cops have been called. So it's John McClane trying to navigate the building. He kills one of the guys. He's sort of causing some, like, guerrilla warfare, psychological warfare on them to try and figure out how many there are. He's doing, like, recon on them to, like, figure out who they are and what they want. And he's trying to figure out a way to communicate with the outside world. Uh, he eventually gets uh, a radio and he tries to radio the cops. Um, this does uh, this barely works. Um, they end up calling like one flatfoot, um, who's Carl Winslow, to come check out the building. He comes in, and because Gruber's crew is so professional, they like make it look like the building has been completely like you know nothing to see here. I'm just losing my football bet. Notre Dame is smoking USC or whatever. So Carl Winslow goes to leave, and John McClane chucks one of the dead guy's bodies out the window onto his hood, which instigates Gruber's crew to go into full fucking, like, anti-siege mode. They've got, like, M60 uh, belt-fed machine guns and windows. They've got a rocket launcher. They're, like, ready ready to repel stuff, and the building goes into lockdown mode. They stop pretending like everything is okay because Carl Winslow uh, survives this, and then obviously reports it up the chain, and then they start bringing in... They're not SWAT, because I don't think SWAT exists at this point, but, like, 
higher tier cops with like better gear. Um, yep. I, I don't know if they're like, I don't, I don't know if they're just, yeah, like more tactical cops, but they, they get brought in. They're just as incompetent. They're easily repelled. They even bring in a big APC and Gruber well, and we're, we're like noting a, that like Gru- at this point, Gruber's still alike. Hey, cops are always part of the plan. It's inconvenient, but like they they do see him as a fly in the ointment. Except for maybe this is confusing. Is is the name actual Carl? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. So actual Carl, whose brother was killed by John oh, McClane. Fritz, get Franz. Is it Fritz, or- Franz, Franz. Um, why did I think his name was Carl? There is a Carl. Is it Carl I'm, Winslow. It's because five and a half years of this podcast shows that I'm terrible at names in general. Yes. Um, I think it does. Uh, but yeah, he. I mean, one person takes it personally because they because uh, McLean killed uh, killed his brother. But the rest, it's like, yeah, it's annoying, right? Until he kills the guy who has the C4 detonators. He blows up the C4, but there still is an obsession around the detonators, which McLean can't figure out. Yeah, yeah, because to him he was like, I thought the detonators were just to like, you know, um, blow up and... For the C4. Yeah, yeah. For C4 detonators. Yeah, yeah. So they've got, he's like, well, I thought I blew up all the C4 because that was all the C4 I had. Um, They now know that they have this sort of gorilla character running around. They begin to talk shit over the radio while uh, John McClane also uh, sort of commiserates with Carl Winslow over the radio. The cops outside are just, like, brutally stupid. They call in the FBI. Also pretty stupid. We'll get to them more in a minute. And and John McClane is essentially taking them down kind of one by one or two, two you know, uh, two by two. And it, it's not a huge group. It's, like, 12 people. They're all really individualized. And uh, eventually he, uh, Gruber is poking around. John McClane and Gruber, like, discover each other. Um, through a scene we just described earlier, yeah. um, wherein uh, Gruber is is pretending to be a member of the staff who just got away, and well, John McClane kind well, of well, yeah, because they're they're running out of people to do tasks. So so Gruber's like, you guys go do this. I guess I'll go try to you know check, check to make the sure the wiring. Yeah. yeah, check the explosives is fine. Yeah, yeah, because this this plan is 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 very very specific, um, and it does involve having the cops brought in eventually. Um, because he's wired the roof to explode, which we don't exactly know just yet. Uh, Gruber gets away. John McClane gets kind of fucked up in this battle. It's the, uh, the walking over glass thing. Um, and at this point, yeah, he has already he killed. He handles it way worse than Annie Lennox. <laughs> he, he absolutely does. Um, he's much quieter about it. Um, do, 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 do. And he basically... Um, Oh, he he commiserates with Carl Winslow over the radio, yada yada. Um, but he 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 realizes at this point he needs to take the battle to them. He now knows that the roof is wired to explode, and he needs to um, help uh, help essentially like uh, get the people off the roof. Um, so he starts yeah. fighting through some of the men. He well, because their demand is for helicopters, right? So they're going to escape with all the money. They're going to have the helicopters called to the roof where the hostages are. They're going to assume they are, everyone dies, and they're going to assume they're dead too. Yes, yes. So that's actually a cover for them to get away with uh, with the money. They're, the Gruber's crew is communicating to the outside world that 
uh, oh, we want uh, these people from the Asian Dawn released. Like, they're playing the terrorist game. Um, like, they just wanted hostages, but in reality, they're, they're you know, they're just common. They're just crooks. Uh, John McClane kills Gruber's right-hand man, um, or so we think. Uh, John McClane uh, kills a bunch of the, the, the people to get to the roof, uh, where he scares off the hostages off the roof because it's going to blow up and none of them fucking believe the crazy guy with a machine gun. Um, he scares a bunch of them off and then they, uh, as this is happening, he looks like a target to the FBI guys who start shooting at him. Uh, he escapes off the roof with the famous, uh, hose trick where he ties a hose around his waist and then jumps off the roof and very, very cool. He escapes back into the building. Um, so the hostages have made it off this roof at this point and the explosives go off because Gruber is just like, we need to cover ourselves. And now the building is on fire. Cops outside haven't quite figured out what to do just yet because they just lost the FBI guys. Um, and in the chaos, Gruber is hoping to escape by a, um, like a EMT car. So John McClane, uh, but, uh, at this point, McGruber, McGruber, uh, Hans Gruber has figured out. <laughs> That's excellent. So we've got McGruber and Carl Winslow. Keep going. Oh, did I mention McGruber's in this movie? Is Mr. Ed in this movie? <laughs> Don't have time. No time. Um, but, but, uh, Hans Gruber, uh, discovers that Holly Gennaro, uh, is, is John McClane's, uh, wife and takes her as a specific hostage. So John needs to go, uh, defeat the last few guards and, uh, defeat Hans Gruber. He does so by taping a gun onto his back and pretending to surrender his, his, his MP5. Uh, and then in the last moment, right when he's about to be executed by Hans Gruber, he pulls the gun out, kills the one guard, and then kills Hans Gruber. Hans Gruber starts to fall out the window, um, and in a very famous sequence, he's holding on to Holly Gennaro's, uh, uh, gifted Rolex, um, and he, uh, they, she unclasps it to drop Hans Gruber, who dies in a, just a beautiful shot that apparently was a huge pain in the ass to shoot, um, falls to, to his death. Um, and at the end of the movie, uh, you know, some cops are mad at him. Um, the, the media that has been hounding his family, uh, William Atherton. Yeah, we, we did not mention him. We did not. Um, it comes up and is like bugging them, you know, in this moment of, of uh, you know, this moment of relief is bugging them. And Holly Gennaro punches him out because she knows that he has been harassing her family. Well, his, yeah, his tabloid journalism, um, he went to their house. And tried to have their kids say goodbye to their parents, which reveals that McLean and Gennaro are married. Yeah, he's undermined. Uh, John McLean is undermined at all at all points, except for by his wife, um, who tries very hard to to um, help his strategy. Uh, at the last moment, um, the the right hand man somehow survives choking to death. He he rises out of his body bag to take down. He rises out of his body bag, still holding his like stare og. Um, to take down because they don't take those away from bodies, right? Um, yeah, no, they they uh they it's in an LAPD, it's like uh, Egyptian rules. Oh yeah, they bury them with the things they love. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is his personal effects, so. I mean, he died with it. I assume he loves this gun. <laughs> it's a very fancy European rifle. He, it's, you think he would have he would have bought something cheaper if it was just as a gun? No, he loved this. Look, thing. we'll let the suits downtown sort out whether we should take the gun from the dead body or not. But for now, they're together forever, as far as I'm concerned. They're just huge Second Amendment fans. They're like not even out of his cold dead hands. Um, but L- L.A. known for. 
<laughs> Huge Second Amendment. <laughs> yes. Um, NRA headquarters located downtown LA. Uh, and then uh, Carl Winslow uh, executes, um, just absolutely bloody murders uh, the, the right-hand man in a sort of uh, like a redemption moment. Uh, and those two, uh, Holly and John McClane, ride off into the sunset with their... Um, with um, Argyle, who I barely mentioned because he's not yeah, that effective. Argyle also stops that he he dry, he wakes up long enough to drive his limo into the ambulance and and ruin their uh, escape attempt. Yeah, there's a lot of plot details, and it's really hard to decide what to include because some of it is I, I didn't even mention Argyle before because I was like he's kind of important to the movie. Um, yeah, the, the thing you need to know about Argyle is that uh, that is the most unrealistic thing that happens in this movie. No one sitting in a car by himself can maintain that level of party energy for for five to six hours. <laughs> <laughs> like even with drugs, we don't see him. Do, we see him drink. Not great for your limo driver, but um, we don't see him do drugs. Even with drugs, I think you're getting bored two hours in tops. Oh yeah, and you're just sitting in a parking garage in a basement. Yeah. Like, are you, you even supposed every to time they the cut motor? to him? Every time they cut to him, he's like seat dancing with sunglasses on in a dark parking garage, uh, talking to people on the phone. It's, yeah, he's having a. It fucking just stretches blast. credulity. I like Argyle. He's also I'm getting just paid for. He's also getting paid for every minute of this. Presumably, he doesn't know that the corporation upstairs now may. You know, I mean, at least its American branch does not exist anymore. Um, no. <laughs> the, no, because all all their all their uh, money, which they did not keep in a bank, is raining down on the city of Los Angeles, and that building's on fire. So they're whatever non-negotiable bonds or whatever the fuck it was. Bear bonds. Um, yeah. built, there we go. The bear. I, I always say, if you're going to get bonds, make it so that you can negotiate the value. That's my <laughs> look. I'm no economist. I made no money in the stock market, but I would always recommend negotiate your bond value. Bill, what do you think about this? I'm trying to decipher what that means. Uh, what do I think about what? The, the bank well, or so the it, having let me, uh, uh, Bill, I'll walk you through it. So <laughs> I'm glad. Please do. <laughs> on, on the on the on the uh, the the pages of dollars that they have, which I call oh, big I dollars, see where you got it. I, um, okay. They say non-negotiable bonds. And I would just say like, look, as a as someone who has seen lawyer-related movie and TV properties, always leave room to negotiate. I think that's economics 101. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. You can negotiate the value of your bearer bonds, sure. I, I would say if you have the option, choose to be able to negotiate. They should have robbed a building with where they had big dollars – which again is based on the size of the bill, not the value. Uh, they had big dollars where you could negotiate. That's what, I mean, hands groomers are supposed to be. So By small. the way, the, like bear bonds, like don't exist anymore, and I'd be surprised even if they existed in that quantity in the era of Die Hard. But it's, I'll be it's, honest, most '80s and '90s action movies revolve around stealing, like I said, big dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am unclear what they are. <laughs> well, I, I like it better in uh, Lethal Weapon 2, where it's all revolving around Krugerrands. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's just like this antiquated car full of gold. Or Lethal Weapon 4, where they're like, we got a, a, a way to print money. See, that just... Like, we stole a printing brilliant. press from, like... Yeah. I'm unclear. Like, yeah, Bill, walk us through. What are big dollars <laughs> to you? <laughs> What do you mean? Do big dollars make big sense? Big dollars. 
We ask our resident financial advisor. I have no idea what Bill does for a living. I, I don't. Uh, he does. He handles big dollars and small dollars. I, I don't get the reference. Okay, so am I? What am I? <laughs> well, I'm saying that. So the the dollar bills that they're stealing are bigger than normal dollar bills. So walk us through how many folds to fit in a wallet. Uh, I mean, you can't fold a bearer bond more than seven times. It's just impossible if you're folding it in half. But it's at least six folds. Although, you know, it's... What would you do if you, like, saw someone at Starbucks and they pulled out their wallet, pulled out a very folded piece of paper, and then it was a bearer bond? Well, I, I tell you one, they don't really exist. Like, the bearer bonds aren't, like, currency, to be clear. I mean, they're just due from the counterparty. So probably another bank issued the bearer bonds, and you can take them to the bank and get your money for it upon maturity. So their plan is to steal... So. Wouldn't they get caught when they go in there with suitcases full of big dollars and be like, give me the small dollars? Yes. But the the whole silly thing about a bearer bond, like any bearer instrument, technically, I think lottery tickets are bearer instruments. Like bearer meaning like he who holds it. So like this is like a bond for like Disney Corporation, a 99-year bond, and you get X percent interest and you get x amount upon maturity whatever the principal amount of the bond is right the bearer that holds that note owns it so it's silly in the sense that like yes the corporation has 600 million dollars of notes that they purchase from we're going to say disney and you know that entitles them to interest and like repayment of said notes but it's a bearer note in this case or a bearer bond and so he who holds it owns it and so the only way they, they can monetize that is to go sell it to someone, which is like everything, everything that Bill said made my eyes hurt so bad. And I know that you're talking to me, but like, as I tried to visualize what you're talking about, it is like, no wonder that my wife does our, all of our finances. Yeah. It's silly. Let's just go with, they'd get caught trying to actually turn that into cash. But so, why? But cougar hands so, are good, but, right? Yes. <laughs> but why in all, then like eight, like, the, the amount of times I see them steal big dollars. So some movies, big dollars high, like, are stock certificates. They're not like specific, which again, by the 80s, were rarely held by individuals. They were in many cases actually held by like the broker or your market maker, or, like your someone. But are you saying it's all digital? Yeah, now? it is. Like we don't have like they're cloning. We cheap. don't have any certificates for like the shares that you haven't bought when you made all the money you didn't make in the market. And so that is even still pretty silly um, because I, I really think in general economics is silly and I refuse to participate. Just give me my paycheck and I will go and buy DVDs with it. Um, yeah, see, that, it's a better approach value. because when you steal those, you can like put them somewhere and like it's, it makes sense. Big dollars. Yeah. Not, not don't take it. Take cash or gold. So uh, I know it was a common meme, but it's the first time I've watched it in uh, – a little bit. Ellis really is like just Donald Trump Jr. Oh, <laughs> I'm kind of oh. insane that a movie conjured someone into existence. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. He's um he's just this little this little vibing cokehead um who try keeps trying to like outsmart people and then everyone sees through his shit immediately. It's sort of like um broken little baby that's that's um just constantly getting higher and higher on their own supply both literally and sort of metaphorically um is is such a great archetype like i i I, saying ellis like from die hard is like 
uh, one of those uh, archetypes, sort of like saying, like, um, yeah. like saying, like Reese Witherspoon's character from uh, Election, you know, like Tracy Fleck. Tracy Fleck. There we go. Like a uh, Tracy Fleck from Election. Like it's it's one of those like uh, ar- character archetypes that like you see it in the real world all the time, and you're just like, yeah. oh, that's why you're annoying. They specifically made a movie where a character determined that that's <laughs> what your character was going. Like they specifically made a movie where your character was an annoying pivot point. And apparently John McTiernan didn't like, this is the thing I was referencing earlier, apparently John McTiernan didn't like the performance. Um, he thought he was like... I mean, it's not a very good performance, he, it's just he, this weirdly prescient. He, he thought he was he thought he thought was too annoying, but like the editor and the other producers, Joel Silver, were like, no, no, you have to keep that, that reminds us of people we know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I uh, I want to get back. Let's talk a little bit. We didn't mention William Atherton too much, besides him being a tabloid reporter. He oh, he again is the king of the wieners, really king of the eighties wieners. He is the king of the wieners. <laughs> like I love that they bring him back for Die Hard Two. It makes no sense. It's one of the reasons I love Die Hard Two, where it's like we're bringing everyone back and it's gonna work. Like that is Die Hard Two's commitment, and it it, it succeeds more than it fails at that. Um, he is such like a, a prototype for something that like he, he's kind of seen as like a weasel for in the journalist class, even among the other people at like the hard copy type show called Nightline. Did real Nightline not exist in 1988? Um, but it, it's supposed to be like a hard copy tabloid journalism show. And he's like this, this skeevious person. So much of our media is now just based on the William Atherton's from Die Hard. It's, it's kind of a weirdly like, <laughs> I am, so you know, like, he represents, I think, a very, uh, I think, I think for someone that was supposed to be an exaggeration a little bit in 1988. I think in, in in a very sad, depressing way, he represents closer to the mainstream uh, of of like sensationalized media than uh, than any other version of this would be. You watch it today, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, like when you see Morton Downey Jr., when you see a character like a person like Morton Downey Jr., who would even parody himself in movies. Um, like Morton Downey Jr. feels unreal, and it like it, it veers yeah. into this this category of like um, the only like it's not just the only people that like him are his admirers. Like he's playing a sort of shock jock, over the top character. So like his enemies and people that find him loathsome are also tuning in just to like have a weird like hate watch thing or. People find him so ridiculous that like they can't help but look away. Like that's a different category, right? That's like that's like a Rush Limbaugh thing. William yeah. Atherton's category is more like he is so he is such a uh, a moralless, uh, just just ethics free little like uh, turd um, who is willing to bully anybody in his way so he can get the story first. And he doesn't particularly care even if that makes him an active participant in the news story. Um, which, uh... He he is here, right? Like, he almost gets McLean and Gennaro killed. Yeah. Yeah. And if that had gone differently, then the plan would have gone off great. I mean, apart from Bill's conjecture that the he would have gotten arrested when he they Gruber would have gotten arrested when he tried to trade in those, those bear bonds um, <laughs> like apart apart from that hey so our so our listeners don't get confused if you could keep calling them big dollars big, or do- big yeah money. I, I don't. we need to make a distinction between big dollars that 
or equity in big dollars that are. Yeah, no, everyone knows it means like physically large. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> actually understand that. I was thoroughly like perplexed what the fuck you were talking about for a while there, but no, larger. <laughs> that's why I said they, their goal is to take the big dollars and turn them into the small dollars. <laughs> I thought you were in finance. Why yeah, don't you I know get I, small I dollars it. high I'm just I'm slow. The goal is you get the big dollars. You get more of the small dollars. Yeah, yeah I think the problem is that you're slow. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe if I worked no, there, I, think, I, think I would understand this. better. Where they took Frank Lloyd, or, <laughs> I think, I, I they think bought Frank Lloyd Wright's house just to it. make the lobby of their fucking 30th floor tower or 30th floor Christmas party as a trophy against America. Oh yeah, yeah. That is that is a, 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 a strange detail. And it was also Joel Silver was a huge Frank Lloyd Wright fan. So some of that might just be Joel Silver like loving falling water. Uh, like some of that is definitely referencing like uh, J- uh, uh, Japanese having a sort of uh, Western philia, um, a, a sort of a love of um, American or Western culture and seeing that as like a weird path of legitimacy, um, which is not true of all, all Japanese people. But there was a, a, a trend at the time of like building, building specifically like a westernized and, and, and American um, monuments in Japan or, or, or lifting American architectural styles. This is like definitely both referencing that and also Joel Silver just had owned several hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright properties over the years. I think... We were supposed to believe that they bought the actual falling water, dismantled it, and put it on the, you know, 30th floor or whatever it, it is. In which case, uh, falling water served a practical function and then it kept John McClane from being exploded. Yes. The literal falling water helped him do that. Yeah. Uh, it is, I mean, before we move off of William Atherton, he, uh, I'm just going through his filmography to make sure, like, there's nothing I wasn't, like, horribly forgetting but yeah his entire 80s is playing uh wieners is the best description i can think of (laughs) he did get so he's he's talked about this that he used to get challenged all the time in bars to fights i don't think it was like some sort of weird like chivalry like slap a face i think with a with a glove and say i'll meet you outside or you know pistols at dawn i think i think that's a nice way of saying people kept trying to beat the shit out of him because he so besides ghostbusters he appears in die hard and die hard 2 and real genius all playing the most punchable fucking villains in the world and like his 90s output is the only thing notable is um I did just send Peter one of his movies as we were talking, so I didn't forget it because he he plays in a uh, a movie called Prairie or Grim Prairie Tales, which is a horror anthology western, <laughs> uh, which sounded interesting to us with, for Spooktober. Brad Dorif, James Earl Jones, yeah. But the only thing I've ever seen him in, which I have seen, is uh, and I remember him playing a little shit in, is Biodome, <laughs> where I forgot that he's the uh, he's the shitty head scientist with the girlfriend that I guess like I don't know who ends up with her. It's either Polly Shore or Stephen Baldwin or both or whatever. But uh, yeah, that's that's his role in Biodome. Yeah, he did reprise his role in the Ghostbusters video game that came out in two thousand. But yeah, I believe for a period of time that that third Ghostbusters or that Ghostbusters game was a canonical third movie. Like it was, yeah, it was it was actual canon until I don't know the new one comes out. I guess. It's actually like I, I I kind of enjoy it. I mean, it does have the entire original cast in it. Yeah, it's just not very funny. No, <laughs> it's like it like it like has a lot of like uh, the aesthetic touches, but not like the. Um, this is a well-written and interesting thing to interact with thing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a video, video game. Staff. Like, you can just... Yeah, like, a lot of the video games is, like, failing at things. <laughs> Makes it not very cinematic. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have to make it hard. To... Wait, which button sucks in the ghost? How long do I have to bash this? Oh, I died. Before? Movie um, over. Yeah, I uh, died. Oh, oh I don't remember the part of the movie where they just bash the same identical ghost 60 times over and over again. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I do want to talk about, in case we don't get back to it, because I feel like this is just going to now be shouting out random things that we like. I mentioned how good Paul Gleason's turn is from, like, I'm in charge now. I, you know, I'm i not going to listen to anything that anyone says to, like, a person who's just forced to throw rocks at the FBI agents as they as they take over. He has so many good lines, I have to call out. Maybe one of the funniest line deliveries of all time. And then I'm interested to hear what uh, Bill said was his funniest line. But, like, when the FBI agents die in the helicopter <laughs> explosion. And he says, uh, <laughs> we're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> oh, I saw it coming. It is so good because the the best, the reason why it's so good is that, like, I believe that Paul Gleason's character means that legitimately. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't even think it's necessarily meant as a passive aggressive thing. I just think he's such a, like a bureaucrat, uh, bureaucrat in an empty suit that the, he finds out the FBI are in charge. And so now he's listening to the FBI. So when the two FBI guys get themselves blown up, I think he's supposed to be like, well, I guess, you know, I'm not in charge anymore. And I'm not going to take over something that's been told to me is going to be run by the FBI. So I guess we're going to need a few more FBI guys. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's so good also because it's showing you his ineffectual attitude. He's like, I own this scene. But also, yeah. I was really happy when someone else came and took it over for a little bit and I could hand over all duties to them. Yeah. Which I guess serves as a contrast to McLean, right? Because McLean tries to do the same thing, but the second things go wrong, he has to jump back into action, even though he's tired and hungry and bloody and everything else. Where Paul Gleason's like, "Oh, well, wow," because McLean's actually <laughs> effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's good. I also love. I mean, we talked a little bit about how shitty those FBI guys are. But I love when they do exactly what the terrorist wants and, like, the, the shit-eating grin of, like, bet they're shit in their pants right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they suck yeah. so bad. It really is, like, comical. Bill, what's, your, what's the funniest thing? Oh, for line, me, my, uh, my most – yeah. I guess for me it's when – God, I'm going to – what's the Japanese guy's name, the boss? Um, Tagaki. Tiaki. Tagaki. I don't know, but it's Hans Gruber is like, <laughs> so Mr. Tiaki won't be joining us for the rest of his life or something. <laughs> 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 so he's not going to make it. He won't be joining us for the rest of his life. It is like, it's yeah, like deadpan and like, but then clearly said as a joke. And like, I love it. Like, it doesn't like make you laugh out loud yeah. per se, but it is to me the best line or like one line laugh. Yeah. Well, that's why he's so good, right? Like, I'm going to count to three. There won't be a four. There really won't be a four. I'm not going to do, like, a, a thing that, like, I do all the time where I have to add two and a half into things because I wasn't ready to commit to my count to three, um, you know, as a parent. Um, 
you know, he he really is. And he's like, I'm going to let everyone know that I killed this person for not cooperating, but I don't need to be um, big about it. Just he's not going to be joining us for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, like uh, that's I think like I think we didn't talk enough about how this movie uh, made Alan Rickman, um, who was already, I think, in his 40s, um, made him like yeah. a, 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 a bit of a celebrity and like this kicked off his actual film career, even though he was already a, a performer like a stage performer. Um, he is, he enters the movie. He steals the movie immediately. This was actually the first impression that Michael Kamen and a bunch of other of the big voice, the, the, you know, the, the, um, person who composed the score and some of the other producers, the, their first impression when they saw the movie was like, yeah, your villain stole the movie from your hero. Sorry. <laughs> um, is, is that Alan Rickman, um, does kind of steal the movie. He, <clears throat> he enters in, um, and he's this beautiful mix of finesse and brute force. Force. So um, it shows even with his crew. So he has uh, Theo is the hacker, and he like comes into the lobby and he's like talking about some game just to kind of like distract the um, the, the the guard. And then the right hand man just comes out and and shoots the guard in the, in the head. And it's all part of this sort of like um magician like trick where they know that like they can keep their risk low if, if they understand human psychology and like they know that they can get their plan done if all they do is, is do a little bit of social engineering like the scene where he walks through the crowd and he probably knows what tagaki looks like right um he probably knows which one is tagaki even though there's several other japanese men in the room um he's probably already done his research but he's walking through the crowd and he successfully draws out tagaki by just reading off all the research he's done about him like one notable fact fact that i always forget is that tagaki's family was pulled in an internment camp um which is like a sad strange little detail that hans gruber is just like weaponizing to make tagaki feel vulnerable um and then mention, and then the last thing he mentions is like, and he has five children. <laughs> like he's mentioning like all this stuff very clearly as a threat, but he's doing it with that Hans Gruber finesse. And then he compliments Tagaki's suit, and he says, "Oh, I have two of them myself." Um, and then he's uh, complimenting uh, the designs uh, the, for their future projects, and he's doing all of these things. And the 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 ability for um, Alan Rickman to swerve from that to all right and then shoots a guy's brains out all over plate glass is is just remarkable that you you he makes him like a like a seductive like snake or something like you don't know when he's if he's gonna bite you or if he's just gonna dance for you it's a strange wonderful performance it's like when you climb the yeah and how he class, right feels weird but exciting <laughs> sorry but dangerous <laughs> yeah he really i mean he's so good at having everything under control and um even when all when mclean thinks he's making some sort of impact or dent into his plans like calling the police or killing a couple people like you know the whole thing is that he is in control the whole time and so it's not till the detonators a little bit and then near the end where their rooftop plan was foiled that he finally kind of starts showing that kind of like 80s movie villain anger where he's like kind of like you know uh yelling 
and grabbing uh grabbing Gennaro and just being like now I just want revenge like you finally push me past the breaking point where I don't have my cool anymore and it, it it still feels very at home with the character like he always was in control even when he wasn't in control or there were some things that were that were going wrong he had the confidence in himself and his crew and his plan his intelligence and everything else to get things back on track you know he knew it wasn't going to be smooth sailing he's prepared for eventualities all that kind of stuff and then you know the moment where he realizes he's kind of like best case scenario he's taking some money and escaping and people track him down that's when he starts being like you know what i need to kill these two motherfuckers like i need to inflict some actual personal pain and like he's so good at that too like between you know uh the the part where he has to do it with the american accent and change his personality like Alan Rickman, you're, you know, I, I think one of the things we'll be talking about the rest of this month is the way that not only is the rest of the movies chasing what is essentially a perfectly constructed, written, conceived, executed action movie, it's also following one of the most iconic villains of all time, if not maybe the most iconic villain of all time, minus like a Darth Vader or something like that, or, you know, uh, Lucifer. um you know he's whenever you see those like top 100 empires top 100 villains of all time you know hans gruber is going to be in the top five at a minimum if not you know near the top of the list or at the top of the list and i you know i think uh die hard 2 suffers in comparison which any movie would but it, it really leaves a vacuum and i think where die hard 3 understands is that we need someone who's both in some ways related to the villain but also an actor who can be that level of intimidating. Um, and I do think that they learn from Die Hard 2 somewhat mistake, even though I really like uh, the actor who who's, uh, plays Die Hard 2's villain. It's just, it's you know, it's hard to compare to fucking Hans Grumer and then, uh, you know, Timothy Oliphant in full-on evil mode and Jeremy Irons. Like, it... The, the, the Die Hard series very quickly realizes, like, we're not going to top Hans Gruber, but we have to be, like, swinging for those fences in some respects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're going to need to access, um, you're going to need to access the upper echelon. You're going to pull uh, in that you're gonna Robert Redford money, you know, like, you got to yeah. swing for the big guys. <laughs> and I do think that, like, the another nice thing, I think by the time we get to Die Hard 2, apart from the head military guy, most of the uh, bad guys become kind of anonymous. Whereas in this, I feel like you're getting some characterization and some interpersonal relationships in basically all of the bad guys minus like yeah. one or two. And like all of them have at least a few lines where they're showing off their stuff. And like, there's one guy who uh, uh, I think the actor's name is Al Zhang. He's like, uh, he plays the torturer in lethal weapon. Um, and he plays uh, Uli in this. Um, he doesn't have any fucking lines. He gets wiped out by John McClane without any incident. But he has a shot where he's uh, guarding the like a convenience stand in the back of the um, Nakatomi Plaza, and he just like steals a candy bar. Like little moments like that that were actually improvised on set. Like that kind of um, chaotic energy and the fact that like like you were saying earlier, um, Aaron, that the they needed to go back and like 
add more scenes and add more sequences mid that weren't in the original script. And the fact that the script was originally written by Jeb Stewart and then D'Souza came and took over um, because the, the script didn't have like the comic beats that it needed. Um, and this two screenwriters were, were not, well, they're not working fully independently. Like it was like Jeb Stewart had a script, people wanted the script. And then they brought in the other guy to be like, well, can you make this like functional and like a fun summer movie? Um, also, cause at that point they had cast Bruce Willis and they're like, let's, let's play it. Was it supposed cool. to be yeah. terrorists? Like, I don't like, I, I, I read some less than reputable. No, it always was. It always robbery. was like, um, terrorists and ideologues masquerading or sorry, capitalists masquerading as okay. like terrorists. So that wasn't so in the original book. It was not in the original book. It was kind of terrorists that like had a good point. Yeah. Because, like, I read, like, and then, like, D'Souza, like, some interview was talking about it, and that it was McTiernan or whatever that finally said, like, we can't make terrorists fun, like, we're doing a robbery, like, or terrorism fun, and, like, I just didn't know who really got credit and what was real or whatnot, what I read. Which, uh, which again, is going to be, we're going to contrast that next week, because Die Hard 2 is like, what if they are real, like, right, like, really right-wing <laughs> military junta-type terrorists? less fun i don't know yeah it's great yeah they needed a date yeah, i think it's yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and i i yeah i guess just kind of pointing it towards the end like for me at least um the fact that i said this isn't a christmas movie like it's a, sorry this is a christmas movie but like i think honestly the best pitch for this is a christmas movie isn't that it plays like run dmc's christmas song at the beginning um or that it ends in a christmas song um, it's actually in two things. One, Michael Kamen's score infuses like sleigh bells in menacing times and, and, and it, it sometimes picks up little riffs from holiday classics and like makes them menacing by making them in like a minor key instead of a major key. And it's really clever because once you're listening for it, you can hear it. But when you're watching the movie, you absolutely do not fucking hear it because sometimes Michael Kamen's scores can just be like... You just you just feel the emotion of the moment, like hey, this is a nice, <laughs> this is a nice like exciting little zippy action scene, but you're not paying attention to like actual melody. They can sometimes his scores can feel a little anonymous, but he specifically on this he was like, oh, it's a Christmas movie. I need to infuse some Christmas energy into the score without making every scene just chock full of, um, you know, uh, like let it snow, let it snow. Um, I I'm, I'm composing a score here. And then the other thing is that the movie is like, it finds a genuine sense of, and this is kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. There's a bunch of diehard riffs, right? This is the only one where I actually care about, like, I hope that Bruce will, I hope uh, that John McLean and Holly Gennaro get their, their relationship together. I hope they're able to patch things up. And as the movies go on, you realize that did not happen. Um... But the sense of I, I, I almost want to save that for the Die Hard with a Vengeance discussion because I actually like I'll plant it here for further discussion later. But like I really hate the like uh, they do this in Jurassic Park weirdly enough too, uh, where like lesser sequels try to introduce drama by tearing apart a happy ending of an earlier movie just to add uh, additional yep. like. Uh, characterization like i i actually I find it. it like i love that they're still well connected as a couple in die hard 2 i love die hard 3 and 4 i think uh destroying the happy ending of this movie is uh not worth that when they could easily have some throwaway lines why the actor wasn't yeah. there yeah i keep forgot to call that's it yeah ab ab absolutely absolutely yeah and i i think that the the sort of heart that this movie ends with and the fact that you know that 
Um, they're like going home to his kids. Um, like it really makes the ending sing and it, and it feels like what Christmas movies are really about, which is like about like putting your bullshit aside and learning something about the people that you supposedly care about, the people that you've, you've bound yourself to as your, as your family. And that's why I think it's, it's pretty, I think it's a pretty sweet ending for a movie that people think of as just like, oh yeah, John McClane fucks that guy up. Like, I think that actually lands that emotional beat in a way that like, you know, I've seen a lot of, uh, the, you know, Die Hard likes. Um, I think Speed is is a pretty good one. Um, the Rock is a pretty good one. I like I like Sudden Death. Uh, I I don't think any of them have the emotional impact this one has at the end. No, um, or the sweetness because you don't yeah. feel like those women. Carla are, are was the prom characters. queen. <laughs> yeah, you just feel like it in The Rock. It's just like a woman who's way out of Nicolas Cage's league. For sure, gets to go home to. He gets to go home to her. I I do think from like my final thoughts, I I and hopefully we were able to touch on all of it, but I I think it's easy to forget. Like this movie doesn't do one thing well. It it basically does everything well, right? Like it does have a heart and a real relationship at the center. It does have fantastic uh and thrilling action sequences. It does have a a hero that you like that feels compassion for people and is trying to do the right thing, but it is, is relatable. And, 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 and yes, that uh, being relatable to Bruce Willis and action heroes walking over glass is like a movie trick, but it's a trick that like eighties action movies, as we've talked about, were not trying to pull off. They wanted you to look at these people as like gods among a men. And this one makes him like relatable, human, fallible, breakable, all those sort of things that are, I think, important to where movies uh, and action movies uh, explicitly end up going in the 90s. It has, uh, you know, some amazing special effects and set pieces and side characters who feel real and feel uh, funny. And it like it does all of that. Um, and, um, you know, that is ultimately I think a lot of people sometimes point to, oh, Die Hard's great because it's an action movie with a really great villain, or Die Hard's great because Bruce Willis is so funny in it. But it really is uh, doing that amazing feat that rare, rare movies do. It is it is just firing on every possible cylinder, even cylinders you didn't know you needed <laughs> in a movie. Um, and they all, you only recognize how important all that stuff was when you watch um other comparable movies or things that take off or even sequels we're going to talk about three sequels that i love to varying degrees and are like pretty pretty actually amazing how well they kept up um the quality of these movies for 20 for 20 years um but it's just this this movie like is the you know in the same way that when you say like what's the best uh you know space horror movie uh Alien is going to be most people's answer. When you say, what's the best, uh, like, space fantasy, it's Star Wars. What's the best, you know, blah, 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 like, serialized, like, adventure movie. You're probably going to say Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's these movies that just are kind of rise above and just kind of create their own genres and become their own templates for a million other movies and become these cultural reference points. And Die Hard is a movie that absolutely is that. And absolutely deserves all of its status. And there's no amount of uh, lame Christmas jokes or um, just general mummification of it that can really, like, tarnish how fucking good this movie. Amen. 
Yeah. <laughs> Bill, any other final thoughts? Besides, I'll take a amen, but. Uh, I'm just happy that one of the movies that like I will watch over and over, like has been shown this much love by you guys. Cause now I feel like, you know, I'm on a whole nother tier of like movie sophistication, which as we all know, is my goal <laughs> going on the podcast to become cool like you guys. And so I, you're now a sophisticant. This movie, which, you know, I've watched no less than 40 or 50 times, like, it is actually well-respected by others. So, like, I am I feel vindicated, really. Although, in some ways, I'm also <laughs> embarrassed because of, like, what they do to the finance guys, uh, make them look like the jerks that they can be and idiots, which I think is somewhat misplaced. Uh, but other than that, like, I love this movie. I might watch it again after we get off. <laughs> I, I also like. I'm. I'm. I'm glad that now we have kept up a three-year tradition of having you on for our Christmas. This um, like months. I can't believe it's been a three-year tradition now. Like it's our third year where Bill has headlined our. our, our I'm Christmas amazed that we haven't talked about it in any of the Christmas episodes. Because like Peter, like this to me is like absolutely 100% one of my favorite Christmas movies. And I don't say that like to fall right into the trap you said you hated about the white dude saying they love uh, Die Hard. Like, be it as... Bill, you do not... Hold on. You do not fall into that trap because that trap specifically is like edgy dudes who uh, don't like emotion trying to pick a hard-nosed Christmas movie because how how dare they have feelings. Uh, We know that is not the case of you. We did a whole Hallmark Christmas movie month. God, so good. Anyways, uh, I, you know, to me, maybe as arbitrary as like going to cut a tree. Like, I don't really care the content of the movie. Like, I get excited about the time when I get to watch Die Hard. And normally Peter and I are severely inebriated trying to build Legos. Um, (laughs) But it's, you know, one of my many Christmas traditions. And because of that, to me, it is... One of my favorite Christmas movies. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. Again, I hope next time you guys build a Lego tower, uh, it is a... Have you guys built a, a Naka, Nakatomi Plaza? We have Plaza? not. No. No, shocking. because I think it's... Uh, I was going to say is uh, we're uh, sticklers about um, sticking to a color, and we wouldn't have enough like gray-black pieces to build a Nakatomi Plaza to scale for uh, the minifigs. So it's, there's an incredibly boring answer for why we haven't done yeah. it. Yeah, no, I like that. Don't like let imagination and uh, get into get into your uh, serious business of Lego. Yeah. We, no, we get the crazy. More than we like, we need to. <laughs> we just need to. We just need to um, build uh, an entire small city of Nakatomi plazas, uh, as opposed to one large. Yeah, one. we're also like you know adults now, Peter. Like maybe I can like say no one's going to judge me for spending you know, stupid money on the internet to buy enough of the pieces to build Nakatomi Plaza. Also, no one's going to judge you if you just build it multi-cut, like do a floor I'm not worried about color. judgment. I had a whole week where I talked about how much I love Christmas movies. I wouldn't yeah. appreciate, you would I wouldn't yourself, enjoy I the tower if I did it. And the judgment I, I fear is really what what I meant to say is my wife looking at me spending thousands of dollars to order like 550 of like the same window. 
<laughs> do you think if you told her why you were getting all those, she would be more, less, or equal amount angry? Less. If I said it was to build something from Die Hard with her brother, I actually think it might be slightly less. Aaron, what are we what are we doing next week? I'm having trouble remembering. So you know how in this movie they die hard? Yeah. Like, which one's which yeah. one's what die? if like are they talking about like the, the, the goons? Who dies hard? No, because they die relatively easily. I think the die in this equation is one John McClane who dies so hard, he has yet like to die. He doesn't die. Well that's the thing. That's the hardest you can die is by not dying. Oh, thank you for explaining that. It's difficult to kill him. <laughs> no, no, that's not it. Shut up. <laughs> bad, it's the bad. Yeah. yeah, they were one license away from calling this the Duracell. <laughs> Duracell 2, Duracell-er. Um, but uh, yeah, it's Die Hard 2. Die Harder, maybe? I'm actually excited, Peter, to talk to you a lot about whether Die Harder is the title of the movie or the tagline of the movie? <laughs> because it is extraordinarily unclear. <laughs> so it's a command. that mystery and others solved next week. Uh, well, the it's yeah, it's very bizarre. We'll talk about it next week on another great episode of We Love. to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful, uh, as we explained to our loved ones, where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>